pasteurized milk. Uh, it, it's terrible. If you knew how many patients recorded, were told by their doctors that they needed the vaccines and the flu shots, and had these doctors had no clue, like you said, what the ingredients were, what the side effects, the problems. Uh, it's amazing. So whatever reason, uh, you went down the right road, and I'm so grateful you have because you help a lot of people doing what you guys do over there. It's all about information, Doc. It's all I just try to give them as much information. They'll make their own choices. Eventually, well, they'll make the why, right choice, but they have to have That's why we got you on here, because I wanted you to have a chance to tell people a little bit about it. We're only going to scratch the surface, so I'm sure we'll have you back if you'd like to come. And uh, I think a lot of the people are going to have a lot of questions for you. You're you're going to see some new faces, and that's always a nice thing. Uh, what what else I wanted to talk about was that you have uh, some some different things that you carry in there, and I'm not sure where you get them, but I noticed because I used to do beekeeping, and I can't do it now because of the neighborhood. But I've noticed you've got raw honey. I noticed you've got some probiotic drinks besides kefir. And we touched on kefir before, but you didn't get a chance to explain it. Uh, I know it goes back to the beginning of time where the same bacteria to make the kefir has been passed down from generation to generation. But could you explain that a little better for people? Sure. Uh, Every culture on this planet for thousands of years has cultured, has fermented a product, either a a vegetable or a milk your, your, your cultured dairy products. In, in Asia, you have the kimchi. Ireland, you have the cabbage, um, sauerkraut in Germany. I mean, every culture fermented something. Why? Well, our grandparents tried to tell us, you know, was to date. my grandmother didn't know why, but she said, well, my grandmother told me. And she would just get frustrated with me, and I'd say, Grammy, tell me why, and I'll eat it. Tell me why. Well, she couldn't tell me. She just knew it was good for me. Now I know why. The probiotics that are in that bacteria eating that sugar and fermenting that product feeds that gut. I mean, you could get into the medical aspect and the, and the anatomical aspect of that better than I, Doc. But for me, the kefir is basically thousands of years ago, uh, the camel milk, sheep milk, uh, uh, goat milk back in the Middle East uh, to the, up to the Caucasus Mountains. They uh, would take their milk and put them in these animal skins. That's all he had to transport, water and liquids then. The animal skin goes on the back of the horse or the camel. Off they go on their journey. The heat warms up the milk. The milk reacts with the bacteria in the animal skin, and you've got, this, you've got these kefir grains, these, these, these uh, cauliflower-looking, cottage-cheesy-looking things that develop on top of the milk. Well, those are living, growing, uh, uh, moving uh, bacterium, and... As they eat the sugar in the milk, they get stronger. They colonize. And that's the same process that, that you want in, inside your gut. Um, again, and then you have also have veg, vegetable kefir as well. You ferment that. And so that, that was the start of it. That's our story for the start of it. And, um, again, some people don't want to do the, the dairy kefir or the dairy probiotics. They can do the vegetable probiotics. But we have both those at the store for that reason, that every culture can eat it. And it's, it's, really, it's really an essential food. For, for any human being on this planet. Well, yeah, it's, and it's absolutely fabulous. Uh, it, one of the things I have to remind people is if you've ever been unfortunate enough to take an antibiotic, and you shouldn't, uh, I have many natural products that will work much better, then you need to make sure you get back and get some of the probiotics, some of the kefir, and these absolutely. raw ingredients. And, and one of the things that, that, that people don't understand, you brought it up well, grandparents 
grew up fermenting things and not knowing why. Like they soaked the the bread, they let it sprout, and then it either fermented or soaked overnight. And when Grandma would cook, she would grind it and cook with it within a half hour because it was a live food. So today, mm-hmm. if the bread you're buying is on a shelf, you really need to stay away from it. But look at the companies like Ezekiel and Genesis that are doing the fermenting and uh, the uh, sprouted grain like you're doing with the, the vegetables and the kefir, and that's healthy for us. And Grandma didn't know all the reasons, but she was smart enough to know it worked. Yeah, and they used to call it clabber milk. Any of the folks out there that are old enough to remember or heard their grandparents talk about or their parents talk about clabbering the milk. They take the raw milk out, put it on the counter, let the good bacteria eat the bad guys and the sugar in the milk, and then it ferments and, you know, doesn't look good, smell good, or taste good. But it was the most powerful thing you could put in your gut. So is is there any uh, product that is your favorite out there that you do that you just can't wait to have that is one of your, you know, pride and joys? Well, it, it, that the, like I, I always talk about the foundation. I'm not the smartest guy. You know, my wife, Ellie, is the genius. But, uh, you know, for me, I'm a street guy, and one and one is two. It all started with kefir, with probiotic, the most powerful food on the planet as far as I'm concerned, either a fermented kimchi or a fermented mil- a dairy product. So with, with me, it, it begins and ends with that, Doc. Um, and and I have, we have a Grom and Farm program. We call it the Grom and Farm program. Two weeks. Uh, Himalayan salt in your water, a salt sole, if you will, sitting on your counter. Take a tablespoon, put it in your glass of water first thing in the morning. That's two dollars for a month's supply, and you got a pint of kefir for four seventy-five, six dollars and seventy-five. And again, don't buy them from me. Go go find them out there. You folks can buy them anywhere, or make it yourself. We give away the grains for free for the kefir. That's how important we think it is. If every refrigerator in this country had kefir in it kefir grains in it, and people making their kefir. This would be a completely different country, no doubt in my mind. Well, yeah, and what, what, like I said, what you're doing, again, is just is so awesome. And the fermenting is the secret. It, it makes our, it, it's, it's our digestion likes that. It kills the bad bacteria. The good bacteria take over. And once you have a good foundation in the gut of good bacteria, Nothing but good things happen. The poor people that come to me telling me they're taking Tums or Prilosec or Nexium, and oh it was, I have to explain to them, it wasn't that you had too much acid. Your food was rotting because you didn't have enough acid and good digestive enzymes, and it was the acid was backing up. So we put them on kefir and a good probiotic like that, and all those problems start going away. So... I love sending people over to your dairy. They, they're they happy, and uh, I, there's so many products you guys got. I, I'm sure we haven't covered them all. Is there anything that we didn't even touch on? Because I know you have a lot of cheeses. You have some wonderful spreads. Well, you know, the people, once once you have a couple of products and, you know, the kids aren't going to eat the same food, you know, what are you going to put in the rest of your cupboard? I mean, the rest of your fridge. Uh, so that was an issue with our kids, too. So we make a healthy chocolate milk, even though we do put a little demurra sugar in it. Uh, you know, probiotics. We're, we're big on detox tea, so we do a, a, chaga, a chaga mushroom tea. Uh, you know, like I keep saying, you can't live on one product, but we do the cheeses. We try to break it up for the kids as much as possible. So the, the boredom thing and the, oh, that again. 
you know, the parents out there realize, you know, you, it, it's a it's a never-ending process every day to get these kids to eat healthy stuff. So we're always trying to create things, and we listen to the customers. They'll come in with different ideas, and my wife will put those together, and it works. So, so it goes on the shelf. But it's really about doing things that everyone can duplicate. That's everything in our store someone can duplicate. So Now, do you still have the program where people can become a member, or is that something you're phasing out? I've heard different things when I was out there. Well, yeah, I tried to phase it out, but a lot of people, um, it, it served a purpose. It was actually brought to me by a customer, the idea. So uh, the membership uh, is really a consumption thing. My average customer drives an hour each way. We're the only store like this, farm like this in Harris County, population 4 million people. So people are driving an hour each way to get there, which is kind of humbling. But, um, you know, when they get there and you don't have milk, as you said, you know, I sell out sometimes. and They wanted to be sure that they could get some or they wanted to be able to get enough uh, if I had a limit because I'm trying to get to all the families and I, I sometimes limit to one gallon, two gallons when, when things are tight, production's low. So the, the, the membership thing, which is just a dual edged sword for these folks, you know, number one, it, it got them a lower price, um, two bucks off the cream and the milk every day. And then it gave them somewhat of a, uh, a feeling of control. Um, you know, we're all trying to get control back now, our food, our health. So, um, I don't know. It, we're, we're, it's still going. I'm not, I don't push it. Uh, you know, a lot of people sign up cause they talk to folks like you or someone else and it's a convenience for them. So we still do it. Well, what I like to remind everybody is raw milk. If you shake it good and put it in the freezer, when you go into frost it, it is absolutely fabulous. Like fresh. If you do the same thing with pasteurized milk, and defrosted, it falls apart, and it's terrible. So you can yeah, do you like do me. I, I don't like to run out, so I buy a lot, and I freeze it. I shake it good, put it in the freezer, and it's fabulous. And mm. uh, I, I do that with some of the other products like cheese and butter. And I'll, I'll put them in my uh, food saver and vacuum seal them, put them in the freezer, and when you defrost them, it's just like fresh. Yep, yep. Hey, I don't. I didn't know if you freeze any of yours and have extra put away when you have an abundance. Now, no, I don't. I, also, I don't do that. I don't do it. But uh, yeah, a lot of people do. There. I mean, I'm there on the farm, you know. So there's no need for me. But I do understand why people have to do it. Again, it's a long drive. So. Well, yeah, and and like I said, I don't want to run out. I I ran out one yeah. day and had to buy a regular thing of milk, and it tasted like chalk water. <laughs> so you get. I got I spoiled on the good milk. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you used to do goat milk. What what got you away from that? I remember you telling me that was very, very difficult. Oh, man. Hardest thing I ever tried to do. Hats off, again, to uh, goat milk farmers. But uh, for me and all the goat farmers, you'll see there's none, there's none around in our area anymore. It just didn't make money. After three years of, you know, the cow's milk and products paying for the goat operation, you know, I just said, I, I, we, we started with goat milk, Doc. Um, raw cow and raw goat milk and um once the kids switched over to cow i didn't see a reason to do the goat it's it's more of a pain the goats are as cute as they are they're a real you know they can only jump over the fence so many times before you get tired of that and you know the nutrition wise uh cow milk's pretty close the real issue was people not thinking that they could handle the raw cow milk and they can handle raw goat milk but you've already answered that if it's grass-fed no you know no uh, BT tox or any of that stuff from the grains that the, even the raw farmers may be feeding their cows, that's going to get in that raw milk, and they, they may have an issue with that. And 
have to only drink goat milk. But for our family, for a lot of my customers, my, my cow milk tastes the same and uh, has the same effect in their body as the goat milk. So I, I let it go. Uh, it wasn't profitable. So economically, that was, a, you know, it was an easy decision for me. Yeah, well, both milks are fabulous for you, and the secret is that they're raw and they're healthy. Uh, I've never yeah. had anybody that uh, couldn't drink one or the other, and I've never had anybody that thought they were lactose intolerant that we couldn't put them on cow or goat milk, and they did fine. But I have heard mm. from others like yourself that the, doing the goats was just really, really difficult. So I guess yeah. the cow – and cow milk uh, has got that more creamy flavor. Uh, don't you make – more butter with cow milk than you probably could with goat milk. Yeah, yeah, the uh, goat milk a uh, little harder to you know you get less uh, cream per gallon um, uh, than a, than a cow. Especially my cow, Jersey cows have a lot of cream. I mean, each gallon has an average of a cream on the top there or more. So yeah, there's a lot you can do that. The butter, uh, you know, the sour creams, the you know the, all the different items that our grandparents used to make. Yeah. That's another thing. I saw some kind of a cream you had on the shelf the other day, and I haven't tried that. What was that? That was sour cream. We have a cream cheese and a sour cream. Okay. I tried the cream cheese. That was fabulous. I, I think I've tried a little bit of everything you have in the store. I have never been disappointed at all, and every patient I send over there is uh, ecstatic about all the good products you've got. And your prices compared to uh, – all the grocery stores that are doing more and more organic and natural, you're very uh, c comparable to them. So I'd, I'm very impressed that, you know, you can do that without having the big chains behind you. That's very impressive. Well, we did, we did that. We made a, an effort to do that. I mean, that's not easy. We, we keep growing the mechanization, the, the, you know, the, the modernization of our, of our, you know, of our plant, of our, of our, of our farm, you know, we're not bottling by hand. We just started bottling by machine. So, yeah, there's things that you can do that uh, to modernize and bring down the cost a little bit. I mean, I have people come to my farm that I, you know, they in conversation. I, I know it's very hard for them to pay seven dollars or nine dollars for the for the two milks, but um, you know, they do it. They take the hour drive. They pay for that. The kids get healthy, and then you know, they tell their friends and. So we're, you know, we're, we're a little humbled by that doc, you know, but we, we try to do what we can. We're doing okay. Um, you know, I think well, it's, you I brought think up it's a win-win for everybody. That I wanted to mention and I almost forgot. Uh, for those of you that don't know, the dairy like grants is strictly him and his wife and dealing with their customers in a grocery store, the pasteurized milk, the dead food that's bad for you gets a government subsidy so they can sell it for 2 to $3 a gallon, uh, which is unbelievably ridiculous that a, a, something that is terrible for you has got a political backing, and as Grant mentioned earlier, lobbyists and lots of money so they can use your tax dollars to sell you something that will make you sick. So to spend a few more bucks on something that's good for you and healthy uh, – a very small price to pay for your health because without your health, you don't have anything. That's right. Couldn't have said that better, Don. Well, well, Grant, we are starting to wind this down. Uh, can we count on bringing you back a few times? Absolutely. Yeah. I got the personal stories, the political stories, all the things that your, your, your listeners would love to hear. 
So yeah, I, I would put, love that, can, and, and maybe we can drag <laughs> your wife on with you and uh, yeah, there bring you up some of those things that she researches and looks into. Uh, yeah. Between the patients and the people that listen to this kind of a radio show, lots of interest, lots of support for what you're doing. Uh, I, I personally uh, appreciate you so much because in the beginning when I went over there, I didn't know what to expect, and I was so impressed. And being able to send your patients somewhere and know they're going to get quality products and treated really well uh, means a lot. Because when I send them, they, the last thing they remember if it's bad is that I sent them. If it's good, they remember where they went. So I thank you for that. I thank you for all your hard work and Ellie and the family. And you got a great crew working over there, too. Everybody is friendly and helpful. I, I really like that. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Doc. All right, well. We will let you go there, and I will bring you back on probably a few more times this year, if you'd like. I'd love to have you give a chance to tell some of those stories. And like I said, we just barely scratched the surface on what all you do out there. So thank you very much, Grant. On behalf of all of our listeners, we really appreciate you, and keep up that great work. Okay. Take care, everybody. Be healthy. Bye-bye. All right, everybody, and if you'd like to reach Grant, it's 832-627-3856, and it's Grauman Health Farm. You can go search him on the uh, web and look at the picture of the farm. It's it's just a simple, down-to-earth, wonderful place with uh, family-run and operated, and, and he got into it for all the right reasons, trying to take care of his kids years ago. And and as he said, he gave gave up some great careers, making making lots of money, and uh, now he's doing something that's some hard work, but it's rewarding. He gets to see all the people that he helps, and him and his wife are just as nice a people as you could ever imagine. I've gone in there, and no matter how busy they are, they've always taken time to talk to me uh, long before they knew I did any kind of health care or sent anybody to them. I just went in as a customer, and they were just wonderful people with great products. I I can't tell you the difference when you taste raw milk or raw cheese products, and and I'm hooked on Ellie makes those coffees. I don't know what the brand of coffee is, but it's very special. And uh, they've got sweet and unsweet. They've got chocolate milk. They've got yogurt. They've got kefir. They've got probiotics. Uh, the cream cheese is fabulous. I tried one in there one day, and it's just uh, addicting. I, you don't want to open it up because you're going to eat it all. They've got all kinds of meat, the lamb, the chicken, the, the pork, the beef. And like he said, you can buy wholesale. And I think the sign said like a, 150 pounds wholesale, and it was a very fair price, and you could stock your freezer for a year. Everything comes vacuum-packed, like my uh, food saver at home. And uh, like I said, you can freeze the milk. You can freeze cheese. All you do is vacuum seal it, put it away. I, when I buy butter, I, I buy as much as I can and freeze some extra, so I always have it. Uh, just really fabulous products and a really great uh, family farm. So if you're, in, uh, if you're in the Houston area, it's off of 290 and I'll probably screw up the pronunciation, but it's Mushki Road, I think, is the name of it. It's exactly four miles to his little turnoff from 290 on Mushki Road going north towards Tomball. 
and uh, it's you'll see a little sign that says Grauman Dairy, and as soon as you turn left there, it's just a little gravel road, and you're right there at the uh, to the right. You'll see his farm, but 290 and Mushki Road. That same exit has a Cracker Barrel and a Gringo's Mexican restaurant, so you know you're at the right place. And, again, it's almost four exact miles to his little turn on the left there, but you'll see the sign. And uh, great products, good stuff. We'll bring him back a few times. He's got some great stories. And uh, as always, everybody, God bless you with health and happiness. Thank you for letting me be here. It is such an honor and a privilege. And um, as the song says in the beginning, whatever condition your condition is in, I hope we can make it better. God bless you all and good night. May tease a candle flame, the thousand dreams I dreamed, the splendid things I planned, I always built to last on weakened, shifting sand. I live by night and shun the naked light of day. And only now I see how the years ran away. Yesterday, when I was young. I like to talk for a couple minutes about what I call a box list. And these people are my friends, but more important than that, they're people that I trust and respect. I know they'll take good care of you like they always have me. First is Steve O'Brien of Quality Computers. And whatever your computer needs, from home to office, IT, intercoms, PA systems, uh, monitoring, he'll take care of you. 830-998. 4381, he's in the Fredericksburg, Giuseppe County area, but many things he can do online where you don't even have to take the computer to him, and he works all over the place. count high, half of all men over 50 have an enlarged prostate. You can shrink your prostate without harmful drugs or risky surgery. The secret to healing the prostate is to cleanse the prostate and the liver. Call Apothecary Herbs to ask about the Prostate Kit for a comprehensive way to heal and soothe your prostate. Educate yourself on how easy it can be to disinfect, cleanse, and restore your prostate glands. Call Apothecary Herbs for the Prostate Kit and successfully reduce swelling, inflammation, dissolve stones, and cleanse the blood to obtain the results you need. Money-back guarantee with every purchase. Call the experts in organ cleansing. Call Apothecary Herbs now for the Prostate Kit and empower yourself. Toll free, 866-229-3663. For international callers, 704-875-8010. That's toll free, 866-229-3663. Or visit the web at thepowerherbs.com. Pandemics will be a part of our future. The question is, how do we protect ourselves? Are you willing to put your trust in untested vaccine, hoping it kills mutating viruses? Remember, in 1976, health officials tried to inoculate Americans with swine flu, and there was a 300% death rate for those inoculated, and millions were paid out in damages. 
God gave you a sophisticated immune system, and in times of need, you can make it 10 times stronger. So there's no need to panic. Just get prepared. Call Apothecary Herbs to order your upgraded pandemic kit. You will have eight professional strength formulas offering broad-spectrum immune-boosting protection. Take a stand. Have a plan. Have peace and request your pandemic kit today. Call Apothecary Herbs toll-free, 866-229-3663 or online, thepowerherbs.com. That's 866-229-3663 or thepowerherbs.com. thought thyme herb provided strength. Indeed, the chemical compounds of thyme contain antioxidants, an effective germicide that kills whooping cough bacteria and makes breathing easier. Just imagine what you can do with thyme herb when it comes to respiratory ailments like croup, pneumonia, asthma, and sinusitis. The extra benefit of thyme herb is that it soothes nerves and stops spasmodic coughing, so you can get some rest. Who says you don't have time to take care of yourself? Call Apothecary Herbs toll-free for time, tincture, and tea to soothe your cough and get some rest. 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International 704-875-8010 or online at thepowerherbs.com. I'm your resident herbalist, Wendy Wilson. Hope you had a great day. Well, we're here to empower you. That's what we like to do here on Herb Talk. Thanks for joining us here live. Yes, yes, got a pulse. We're breathing. <laughs> Magical engineer Frank and I got a great show for you. We are going to be talking about liver viruses, the hepatitis. And also we're going to be talking about, you know, um, things that you may not realize that chemotherapy destroys. Uh, that you may not, you know, get those answers. From medicine. Also, if we had enough time, we'll talk about some foods that give you, um, you know, some extra function, uh, help, endurance, and things. So we we got lots to do, and we got a quack report. And you know, I'm just so excited because next Sunday's first day of spring. Are you not excited about that? Maybe the allergy, allergy sufferers aren't. Well, you need to call apothecary herbs. They got herbs for that. Well. Before we get into all this stuff, a big salute and semper fi to righteous men and women in uniform. And I'm praying, as you know, for you and me and all of America, praying for this election that doesn't get hijacked, praying for righteous leadership, please, people that are truthful. I mean, come on. We, we need truth and justice, and we're supposed to plead to our Heavenly Father for that, to the Lord Jesus Christ, Isaiah 59 tells us to. Uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm praying for righteous men of valor with steel for a backbone. You know, 
that really can go the extra mile uh, against all the pressure, wickedness. Uh, you know, so hitting the knees, seeking the Lord's face, mind the time. Uh, I, I just think uh, reading the Gospels every night before you go to bed, you'll sleep better. You know, because you know why? Because God is on his throne. He is in control. Even though you may think things are out of control, we still got him. And you, he's got you. So seek the Lord's face. Mind the time. And without further ado, let's do the quack report. Thanks, Frank. Okay, what's first up in the quacker? Um, well, it's new scientists. Let's see, Roche Laboratories and AstraZeneca say that um, a gut bacteria uh, are, sh- are shaking up the cancer research area. Mm-hmm. So uh, trillions of bacteria, they say, live in the human body. So a few years back, they decided to ch- you know, play around with some gut flora there to see how important it is systemically and helping your immune system and maybe looking at a way um, to head up a cancer immunotherapy type of product down the road. According to uh, Roche Laboratories, they say most of us immunologists now believe that there are really, there's really an important interaction here. Well, yeah. You see, God created the human body. It all interacts. Okay, so a lot of studies going on, uh, some of them published in the Journal of Science, uh, have kind of intrigued uh, some uh, researchers in uh, immunotherapies. They want to stimulate your body's ability to fight tumors, cancerous tumors. Uh, so uh, they, they, there's an increased interest in the drug makers um, in your whole human microbiome sphere called the human body. Uh, they want to tap into those good bacterias uh, to uh, make drugs. Mm. Okay. Mm. Last but not least in the quack report, um, here's a here's an article out of the Houston Chronicle. I think it was just posted today. Uh, interesting stuff about healthcare being an illusion. Oh, really? Okay. They say healthcare and the players within healthcare operate as a team. Mm-hmm. They say healthcare has really become an elaborate institutional magic trick. You know, it's a misdirection, one or another. Um, and they say the real reason healthcare doesn't work is because of price. So um, they say the existence of the employer provided health insurance is another misdirection. It encourages you to think that healthcare is free or at least paid by someone else. The existence of private health insurance. Also a misdirection, they say, because private insurance that excludes pre-existing conditions fools you. It allows you to think that health care is less expensive because it excludes many who are really sick. Remember, insurance is about sharing risk, right? Okay, so the existence of government plans that provide health insurance is yet another misdirection, it gives you the illusion that healthcare doesn't really cost much. Another taxpayer is picking up the tab. In fact, the fundamental problem with healthcare is that it costs too much. So rather than address that problem, all these institutions that live on healthcare dollars connive to provide these misdirections. Their goal to preserve the illusion. You know, 
make sure you think of health care is affordable in a vast majority for Americans, right? But it isn't. They state this in the article. You can uh, check this out. There's a couple exercises. You can, there's a handy online calculator on Kaiser Family Foundation website. It allows you to estimate the cost of health insurance under the Affordable Care Act. It does this for households of different sizes and income. It will give you an, a clear idea of the cost of insurance and how much your subsidy, if you qualify for one, is going to be. And it also unmasks the total cost. And, of course, you know what happens with those subsidies, right? They can go poof in a skinny minute, which they have for a lot of people on a lot of those silver and bronze plants. So, yeah, I think America's waking up and uh, getting smart, and they're just going to take the power back. That's what we're going to do, right? Right. And that wraps the quack report. That is so right that insurance is all about risk assessment, sharing the risk, you know, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I had a car insurance company. I won't say who it was because I don't want to get into trouble. You know, I don't need any uh, messy things going on. Uh, my focus is helping you guys, you know, get healthier and stay healthy. So anyway, long and short of this thing is um, I called up, had a, uh, a teenager that was going to be driving wanted to get an idea of costs on a particular automobile. And in the course of the conversation, the lady wants to know what other underage people live with me because they have access to my car keys. And I go, well, what difference does that make? They're not a permitted to drive driver. And she goes, well, it's, it's the law. You have to tell us their name, age, if they reside with you, social security number, the list went on. I said, oh, it's the law, is it? And I said, um, what is the statute then? She was silent. There is a pin dropping somewhere. And she says, well, I said, well, I would like to know what statute code is for that law. You just told me it's the law. You're threatening me with the state. So what is it? Well, she had to put me over to the damage control expert. That unruffle me feathers, and he admitted it was corporate policy. It was state law, and I'm like, well, I'm offended that you just threatened me with state laws with, you know, that don't exist. I, that's called, you know, you know, fraud. You know, you, you're you're harassing me. You're intimidating me to give you information you have no uh, privy to. I was pissed. Let's just say, you know, this herbalist over here was, you know. How to go take my heart formula after that. Anyway, um, people are waking up. It is about risk assessment. And so they tried to let, tell me that even if I gave them that information, it wouldn't have affected my rates. And I'm like, yeah, right. I said, you're all about risk. Give me a break. All right. I had to get off a tangent there. All right. We're going to talk, talk about viruses of the liver. Liver virus is not fun. Mm, no. So we have more than 3.2 million Americans. With the common liver diseases, one of them is called hepatitis C. And modern medicine is uh, using a bunch of drugs for hepatitis viruses. And in the past, not all of them worked or could eradicate the disease. Okay. So lately, there's been this new treatment combining several drugs with some reports of success. 
and with supposedly no serious side effects. Ooh, really? I had no more, right? No side effects when you talk about a pharmaceutical product? Do tell. Anyway, so digging into this, this new treatment also touts that it also prevents liver failure, liver cancer, and the need to have a liver transplant. I was like, wow, they're really going out there on the limb, right? So uh, doctors feel that this breakthrough drug will save patients lots of money down the road. So the question is, do we believe the reports from the drug companies on this drug therapy? Let's check it out. Well, a million, it's really going to be a million-dollar treatment when it's all said that because in 2014, the FDA approved a treatment for hepatitis C. It's comprised uh, by combining the drug um, Solvaldi with a new drug called uh, Lepasiver, I should say, and they, together the two combined drugs make a drug that they call um, Harvani. So the clinical trials on this uh, new drug, Harvani, um, you know, called, uh, well, they call it Harvani, and it's supposed to cure hepatitis C within three months. 94% success rate on patients was what the drug companies were saying. So patients are given the choice to abandon their weekly shots of interferon, which is the old drug, and go on to the new one called Harvani. And many of these, many patients with hepatitis C, they're flocking to this new drug, expecting to be relieved of the flu-like symptoms from taking the interferon. So patients also found uh, the symptoms uh, of being sick when they were using the interferon made it difficult for them to tolerate the treatment and therefore had less than a 50% success rate. You know, people don't like feeling like they got the flu all the time. I get that. However, liver treatments are typically less effective if the liver is scarred by disease called cirrhosis. So how expensive is this new drug, Harvani? Well, according to the insurance companies, the treatment costs about $95,000 for a three-month course of treatment. And in most instances, pre-approval for the insurance from the insurance company has to be required before you can get the drug, before it's prescribed to you. And there are significant restrictions. And there's I won't get into it, but there's this whole lawsuit now uh, from, you know, the restrictions telling patients they're not sick enough for it or they're too sick for it or whatever. So insurance companies also know that, you know, liver cancer chemotherapy treatments cost about $100,000 a year. However, not everyone qualifies for Harvani. So, for instance, patients may find it difficult to qualify for the drug if they have maybe stage 3 or 4 cirrhosis of the liver or maybe they have renal or kidney damage or weakness. So there's some restrictions right now that are being worked out. So how does this drug work? Well, according to medical science, the Harvani drug is known as a direct-acting antiviral agent, and how it does that is it interferes with enzymes, which the virus uh, apparently uses to sustain itself. So if a patient's blood work shows no signs of the virus in their blood work within six months after finishing their treatment, medicine considers the patient cured of hepatitis C. So this is known as sustained 
virologic response, or SVR for short, but it's not guaranteed. And the reason is not because medical science is aware that a small amount of the hepatitis C virus particles can remain, can replicate, and reinfect the patient six to 12 months after treatment. And scientific research is showing that a relapse happens in one out of two patients. Now, there are several drug combo treatments now in the marketplace, depending on the genotype of the hepatitis you have. And this is part of that new rebranding healthcare that I reported on um, February 25th, okay, last month, where I said the new marketing encompasses patient personalized compounded medicines, genomics or gene mapping and function, and they also use uh, the patient's genetics, okay? So uh, that's where this is coming into play. Uh, but we're going to get to the side effects in just a minute. Oh, yeah. Well, I once watched an Oregon attorney on TV, and I believe his name was Mike Arnold. He was representing an alleged murderer, Stephen Wagner Nichols. And uh, he stated this. I wrote it down. I was just, my mouth went, dropped open when he said it. He said, the best thing about science is you don't have to believe it. End of quote. <sighs> uh, you know, that can be taken a couple of ways. You know, either science is perfect and faultless, and you just rely on it, don't question it, or science is not what it appears to be, and you should distrust it until proven. Which is it? Well, it's just like an attorney. It's an open thing. It's ambiguous. That's what they like. Uh, well, let's talk about some of the side effects of these new um, viral hepatitis C drugs. So what can patients expect when they're taking Harvani. Well, the common side effects listed are fatigue and headache. Usually that's what the patients see as the drawback, the, the, you know, the, the, the con to the pro of this drug. Now, Dr. David Bernstein, chief of hepatology at North Shore University Hospital in Manhasset, New York, states that Harvani can be taken with other medications with, quote, no drug interaction. I was like, is that right? So patients often see literature listing the side effects of the old interferon treatments, such as, you know, flu-like symptoms, anemia, anxiety, sleeping problems, compared to the Harvani's uh, promoted short list of feeling a little tired and having a headache. However, some patients have also stated that Harvani pushed up their blood pressure cause dizziness and vertigo, nausea, diarrhea, weakness, tiredness, and severe insomnia. Also, I did find that in some cases, the patients while taking Harvani also experienced the often fatal bracharia, cardiac arrest, and those who survived needed a pacemaker afterward. So it could be that the drug attacks those enzymes altering the protein, the creatinine kinase, which the cardio system needs to protect the heart muscle tissue. Therefore, the claim that there are no drug interactions with Harvani is incorrect. The cardiac arrests are more likely to occur if patients are also taking antiarrhythmia medication or AFib medication. 
Okay, so the Harvani drug also pushes up the bilirubin levels, which indicates liver dysfunction and distress. It usually indicates the liver and the red blood cells are being destroyed. And according to WebMD.com, other side effects using Harvani are serious allergic reactions such as rash, itching, blisters, swelling of the face, tongue, and throat, and trouble breathing. Pregnant and nursing mothers are, or patients with weak or failing kidneys should not use the drug. There's also a warning that Harvani will slow down the detox process of other drugs from the body. That's not good either. So there's also, um, we're also told that you're, you're not supposed to use this drug if you're on St. John's Wort. You're not supposed to use it with some herbs. And according to many hepatitis patients, the treatments of using interferon and other ribavirin drugs would clear the virus for a while, but then it comes back with a vengeance. Therefore, hepatitis patients really looking at the promises of this new Harvani drug and what it offers as kind of like a Hail Mary's path, you know. So one family member, though, offered some feedback on the Harvani after it was given to their father. Quote, they said, my dad, age 68, had hep C for years, was dealing with cirrhosis of the liver after alcohol issues, and the doctor gave him Harvonic. Please be careful. Doctors are not always taking into account if the liver is strong enough when prescribing this med. Wish I could turn back time and keep my dad from taking it. And that was posted March 4th of this year um, by someone by the name of Orphaned. Boy. Well, let's look at some of the unpublished effects of these uh, new hep drugs, hepatitis C drugs. There's another side effect while taking Harvani that are not being published to patients. According to Hepatitis C Society, they have been getting an out, quote, outrageous amount of hepatitis C patients notifying them about the weight gain when they're on this new hep C drugs. Uh, they gain anywhere from 10 to 30 pounds and it's not listed as a side effect with the drug. So it's, it's kind of hard for the patients to implement an exercise weight loss plan due to the fatigue that they're experiencing while on the drug. So um, feeling tired is just, you know, one of the side effects, they say, but fatigue is a little stronger indication that, you know, you probably can't even make a meal, okay? So patients are encouraged uh, by doctors to avoid prepackaged convenience fast foods while they're taking the drug and implement some sort of calorie burning activity. Well, let's let's just look at some liver liberators. <laughs> there are many herbs that can help uh, that we can use to help the body heal itself. So inhibiting the virus is going to be a plus, and using herbs which can that are kind of antiviral. And this is what uh, I would be using if I had hepatitis. I would also use herbs that reduce inflammation on the liver and reduce the cancer risk. In addition, I would, it would be imperative to use herbs which encourage replacement of sick liver cells with healthy new ones. So here are my picks. I would use fresh garlic because the sulfur has an antiviral property in it. I would use milk thistle for its antioxidant silymarin property to help regenerate liver cells. And it also has a bit of an anti-inflammatory um, action if you have cirrhosis or fatty liver going on. 
Willow bark and meadowsweet is another way to reduce inflammation and reduce pain. And dandelion root is great for the anti-cancer uh, properties. Uh, you can look up Windsor Medical Hospital Research in Quebec, Canada. They did the research on the dandelion. Also, blood cleansing herbs help sweep the blood and lift the cellular burden off the liver because that's one of its jobs to, you know, reduce toxins and impurities in your blood. And you can also reduce inflammation doing that. So you might want to look for the garlic juice, the milk thistle, the pain anti-inflammatory with the willow bark and meadowsweet, the dandelion root, and the blood cleanse formulas at Apothecary Herbs. And of course, if you're not getting enough nutrition, you don't have enough energy, you might want to look at the body food mix as a way to sustain yourself, keep yourself from eating all those unhealthy foods. So if I had hep C, that's what I would do. And I would also implement the five uh, system organ cleanses that we also have at Apothecary Herbs. This helps speed the healing process. So uh, you can give Apothecary Herbs a call to order or to get a free catalog. Toll-free number is 866-229-3663. Eight six six two two nine three six six three. Now, if you're outside the U.S., because I know we have a lot of Canadian listeners, uh, you can dial seven zero four eight eight five zero two seven seven, or visit us online at thepowerherbs.com. Thepowerherbs.com, because that's where your healthcare options just became endless. And um, starting tomorrow, that's the sixteenth. That's March the sixteenth. Uh, you're going to save ten percent off and get free ground ship within the United States on orders over $50 with coupon code SPRING16. Yeah, So, but you want to hurry. That expires Sunday the 20th, so you want to get that in. Um, you know, because uh, Leo Tolstoy, he says spring is the time of plans and projects. So spring's really a great time to do your organ cleansing. Get that out of the way. Enjoy the summer. Uh, have a lot of energy. Uh, get the impurities out of the system. Improve your skin, you know, improve your thought processes, your concentration. There's a lot of things that get uh, improved when you get those toxins out of the way. So check that out, thepowerherbs.com, and uh, get the organ cleansing going. And if you have the uh, liver viruses, check out those products we just talked about. They're up there. Also, if you're on the website, do sign up for their free online newsletters, Health Quest and American Survival. American Survival will go out Tuesdays. And HealthQuest on Fridays, so you can sign up. They are free, and they're packed full of empowering information you don't want to be without, okay? You can share that with your family and friends, and you know you're going to get an email that says, where did you get this? You know, you're going to be looking so smart. Yes, you are. And empowering yourself, passing on that power. That's what it's about. People want to feel empowered, especially now, you know, when everything is the way it is. Oh, people want to... Uh, you know, they want to be the callers and the makers and shakers of their own destiny. That's what they want. And uh, being on lifelong drugs isn't one of them. No, no, no. So thepowerherbs.com can help you get that power back. That's what it's about. Oh, boy. I see by the clock we're going to, have to take a break. But we're also going to be talking about what chemotherapy might be destroying that you may not be aware of. And if we get time, we'll talk about some of the healthy foods that make you function better. Got to take a break. We'll be right back.
breathing life into the original medicine. Herbalist Wendy Wilson will be right back. Pandemics will be a part of our future. The question is, how do we protect ourselves? Are you willing to put your trust in an untested vaccine hoping it kills mutating viruses? Remember, in 1976, health officials tried to inoculate Americans with swine flu, and there was a 300% death rate in those inoculated, and millions were paid out in damages. God gave you a sophisticated immune system, and in times of need, you can make it 10 times stronger. So there's no need to panic. Just get prepared. Call Apothecary Herbs to order your upgraded pandemic kit. You will have eight professional strength formulas offering broad-spectrum immune-boosting protection. Take a stand, have a plan, have peace, and request your pandemic kit today, or take your chances with the bad boys. Call Apothecary Herbs toll-free, 866-229-3663, or online, thepowerherbs.com. Leaping tall buildings with a single bound? Faster than a locomotive? Whoa! Find a Superman in you! Listen to Herb Talk Live with herbalist Wendy Wilson. Job stress, financial obligations, or relationship problems have you feeling stressed out? When life is too much to handle, use Apothecary Herbs' emotional stress formula. Feel calm and more in control with herbs especially combined to provide the organic nutrition your system needs to help you cope. Complete instructions for maximum benefit and a money-back guarantee. You've waited long enough. Call Apothecary Herbs now. Toll free, 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International callers dial 704 704- 875-8010 or order online at the three W's dot thepowerherbs.com. American Voice Radio Network is heard on Galaxy 19 at 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices. count high, half of all men over 50 have an enlarged prostate. You can shrink your prostate without harmful drugs or risky surgery. The secret to healing the prostate is to cleanse the prostate and the liver. Call Apothecary Herbs to ask about the prostate kit for a comprehensive way to heal and soothe your prostate. Educate yourself on how easy it can be to disinfect, cleanse, and restore your prostate glands. Call Apothecary Herbs for the prostate kit and successfully reduce swelling, inflammation, dissolve stones, and cleanse the blood to obtain the results you need. Money-back guarantee with every purchase. Call the experts in organ cleansing. Call Apothecary Herbs now for the prostate kit and empower yourself. Toll-free 866-229-3663 for international callers 704-875-8010. That's toll-free 866-229-3663 or visit the web at thepowerherbs.com.
Blurb Talk. Thanks, Frank. I'm going to count on Frank for some bouncy bumper. Thank you. All right, we're going to be talking about what does chemo destroy. Well, patients who receive a diagnosis that they have cancer may also be given a treatment plan that consists of chemotherapy drugs. So there are like 100 different drugs used to treat cancer, and different combinations can be used. So these are drugs that are supposed to kill cancer cells. So doctors will, you know, tell their patients that, you know, the cancer cells grow at a faster rate than normal and, and the normal cells, and then the chemo is going to be necessary, see? So if you're asking the right questions and doing your research on your options, this is going to give you a better picture of information that you can make an informed decision on, okay? So we're going to take a look at, closer look at the chemo what options may be available you haven't considered. So what can chemo do? Well, the typical chemo drugs enter your bloodstream and supposedly attack cells that are actively growing. So this also means that healthy cells or replicating cells, sick or dead cells being replaced with healthy ones, which is a normal process by your body, they're also at risk of being attacked. So medical science says, that damage to healthy cells with chemo is unavoidable, and healthy cells become collateral damage. However, if patients asked if chemo can shrink tumors and kill fast-growing cancer, what healthy cells could be sacrificed? Hmm. Where the cancer is located in your body can offer good indication which healthy cells will die or which organs would be damaged. So what can cancer cells do? Well, cancer cells can grow and divide quickly because they tend to suck up all the nutrition and can starve healthy cells. So on this premise, chemo is the choice of doctors because the cancer cells are greedy and suck up everything delivered by the blood, including toxic chemo chemicals. Therefore, cancer cells will get more of a dose of the toxins in the chemotherapy treatment than supposedly your healthy cells would. However, toxins are still toxins, and healthy cells will struggle. So patients should be aware that cancer can come back after the chemo treatments are completed, and on average, cancer does come back and is detected within two years. Now, medical doctors tell patients that their cancer is in remission, and most patients think this is the same thing as a cure. But the proper scientific definition of remission is a lessening of your cancer symptoms and is really no way a scientifically considered cure. So the, the new way of putting, I guess, this uh, to patients uh, is called palliative therapy, where cancer is not eliminated but is simply managed or slowed down. Okay, it's not growing as fast. All right, let's talk about true breast cancer cases here. Uh, there have been some women who have approached the breast cancer issue as more of an annoyance or an inconvenience. Uh, plastic surgery has, and reconstruction of the um, chest area um, has come a long way, and it can give the illusion of complete health. So the fact that breast cancer surgery can be disfiguring is really not even given a second thought these days because of the plastic reconstruction therapy that can follow. So the one patient 
after faithfully having annual mammograms for more than 10 years, did come down with cancer in one breast. Removal of the breast was medically recommended. However, this patient opted to have both breasts removed to get the whole thing over with. So two rounds of chemotherapy and then radiation were also recommended as treatment and scheduled. And the patient was uh, planning on moving along as quickly as possible to the reconstruction, plastic surgery phase of her treatment. By the way, you can't get to that phase until you complete all those other toxic treatments first. That's just the way it's set up, see. All right, so she was kind of hoping to have, you know, the double reconstruction done uh, within nine to ten months, um, you know, have it all complete, done with. Unfortunately, after the first round of chemo, she experienced a cough and trouble breathing with shortness of breath. Her oncologist, her cancer doctor, referred her to a cardiologist, and after performing an echocardiogram and comparing it to the one she had prior to her surgery, they discovered that the chemo destroyed 20% of her heart function, her heart muscle, which is, you know, acceptable to medicine. They, they know that's going to happen. She had no idea that that would happen to her. The chemo weakened and destroyed heart muscle tissue, and now the heart struggled to pump blood through the chambers of the heart. And this is also called congestive heart failure, as five pounds of fluid accumulate around the heart, making it difficult to breathe. So this patient is now at a greater risk of a heart attack and death. So the the cardiologist prescribes diuretics to help remove the extra fluid and may also add some beta blockers and, uh, oh, yeah, and a follow-up visit down the road. So these heart drugs will be a mainstay for at least three years. Uh, I mean, here's, here's a woman who didn't have a heart problem to begin with, but now she does. So if the heart cannot repair itself, these drugs are going to be a lifelong thing. Okay. So the cardiologist clears the patient for round two of the chemo. So the patient was told by the oncologist they will change the chemo drug to make it a little weaker, uh, hopefully avoid any more damage to the heart. And I stress the word hopefully. So they, uh, and let me, let me tell you this. Uh, if you were uh, a congestive heart, uh, can, uh, congestive heart patient, you have heart failure, and you then came down with breast cancer, you realize you would be totally denied chemotherapy for breast cancer because heart patients are not good candidates for chemo. So apparently if you go in the other way and have breast cancer, then get heart damage from the cancer treatment, it's no problem. Uh, it makes no sense. It makes no sense. So, um, so they're going to do round two. Physicians do not recommend chemotherapy to patients suffering from heart disease and diabetes. So you've got to ask yourself, why is this patient on a chemo-induced heart disease protocol, you know, and then sent for more chemo? Well, the answer is that modern medicine already considers this patient to be a mortality statistic. However, they will take, you know, blood tests, give her x-rays, pronounce her cancer in remission for a while, track her record, uh, say the chemotherapy was successful, um, treating cancers uh, less than 2% of the time, and so this is why doctors refer to it as a feudal care treatment. Yeah, oncologists, your health professionals, they all know this. It's called feudal care. 
And if they had cancer, they refused this type of treatment themselves. So physicians know that there are very few people who can survive the toxic assault of cancer treatments and live beyond five years. Let's talk about chemo damage. Many cancer patients are made aware of the obvious damage and changes that chemo can produce, such as hair loss, mouth sores, intestinal complications. And in many cases, what patients are not told is that, you know, any area of the body that has cells that grow and regenerate organs quickly will be adversely affected by the chemo. They're not pretty much told that. So, I mean, this is where you want to do your homework, go in and ask those questions because it's, you know, this kind of stuff, when you're talking to oncologists, it's like talking to the government. They don't volunteer information, you know. So it's kind of astonishing that the National Cancer Institute lists chemotherapy as a cancer cure when, in fact, it is an expensive therapy that weakens the body further along with malnutrition, surgery, radiation, drugs, until death occurs. So therefore, overall allopathic cancer treatments offer 100% mortality. And true oncologists will admit that. All right, let's talk about standard of care. Because even when cancer trails uh, at Duke University Medical School, uh, the trials there on some of their, uh, Dr. I think Anil Pott, uh, his research, uh, it turned out to be fraudulent. And families had started on this treatment and then sued the establishment, issuing the statement that, you know, cancer patients who were involved in the study received the standard of care in the chemotherapy and therefore would have died anyway. That's their reason for giving you a fraudulent treatment. You were going to die anyway. Well, as Dr. Joseph Mercola states, allopathic cancer treatments are a massive for-profit industry revolving around costly uh, patented drugs and surgery uh, that searching for a cure is on their part pretty much a sham, and it's all media hype, according to him. So cancer patient, patients uphold and support this huge paradigm. So when you see these test trials for cancer cures, they are basically fundraisers for cancer, not against cancer. They, they're the only way that, you know, could, could, you know, fortify all these, you know, cancer wings, support all these, this equipment. It's really a for-profit thing. So this could mean that cancer seems resolved, but at what cost? You know, you have a little remission, but at what cost? And, and there's another illness produced by all these treatments to replace that cancer. And oncologists will tell you that they may get rid of the original cancer cells, but it produces a secondary cancer. So they give you a different kind of cancer with all these treatments. And, of course, when you're on their, their toxic tre treatments, they tell you to stay away from supplements. Yeah. A lot of patients that are taking chemo are prohibited from taking vitamins and minerals and herbs or any supplements that whatsoever that would interfere with the chemicals. So lots of natural physicians have discovered that when you support the body with nutrition, the body needs amino acids and minerals, and it's quite able to destroy cancer by itself when you have adequate amounts of that. So if your body can repair damaged heart or liver tissue, it can certainly get rid of cancer cells, folks. So that uh, that's the point. 
uh, that you have to get in your head. Nutrition is is important part of the repair. Okay, and uh, you got to get the right stuff, the right foods, the right nutrition. Okay, so a lot of it can be right under your nose. Uh, the truth is really the solution to a lot of these chronic and even uh, scary, deadly illnesses is uh, getting the right nutrition. There will come a day when all food, all nutrition will be strictly managed. It, so it's a good idea now to educate yourself on what medicinal foods and herbs help your body to rid itself of disease like cancers. And one way is to keep uh, your immune system healthy and quit using too much alcohol and sugar and prescribed drugs that tend to weaken your system and disable it. So use your immune boosting herbs to heighten your natural immune system. Uh, keep, it, it keeps cancer cells in check, right? So when you get a, a system that's weak, that's when disease takes advantage. So many people are also turning to dandelion root, as we mentioned earlier, because of the new discovery in medical science found that dandelion root is a natural assassin to cancer cells, all known cancer cells, and leaves healthy cells alone. So you don't have any of that, you know, um, collateral damage from the toxic treatments medicine gives you. So dandelion root does what medicine would hope chemotherapy would do but can't. So you can check out Windsor Medical Hospital uh, research on dandelion out of Quebec, Canada, Dr. Carolyn Ham and Dr. Cimerian Pandy uh, revealed those results. So when you also add astragalus root to your dandelion, you get this synergistic effect that they work better together. And astragalus is a bit of an immune supporter. And so my approach to health is really kind of simple. You cleanse away toxins, you nourish the system with good organic foods and herbs, and uh, you boost the immune system and... Uh, you pretty much can sidestep a lot of these health problems once you do that. It's pretty basic. Cleanse and nourish and immune boost. That's easy to remember, right? Okay. You want to use um, modern medicine for trauma. That's what that's good for, okay? But for internal medicine, they don't have any clue on how to heal those diseases. It's all about managing your disease because it's more lucrative to help you live more comfortably with your symptoms than to actually get rid of the cause of your problem. Okay, so organ cleansing, pretty basic, but it does a mountain of wellness for you. It gets the toxins out of the system and it lifts the cellular burden off all those major organs we worry about. Heart, liver, kidneys, uterus, prostate. Okay, so that way, you know, you have less likely, less risk. Okay, if we were insurance companies, you would have less risk of having uh, some sort of internal medicine disease that way. So if you're looking for the astragalus root, the dandelion root, or the system cleanses, along with immune-boosting herbs that are uh, Dr. Mom approved, I should add, check that out at thepowerherbs.com. They have a whole bunch there. They can send you a free product catalog if you'd like. The toll-free number is 866-229-3663, 866-229-3663, thepowerherbs.com. Yeah, if you're serious about herbs, you need apothecary herbs. Certified organic to tilt standard organic alcohol for their tincture making and uh, just doesn't get any better than that. Awesome stuff. Um, and don't forget, starting tomorrow, 10% off and free shipping, ground ship in the U.S. on orders of 50 bucks or more. 
use uh, the coupon code over the phone or on the website, SPRING16, and you want to hurry because that deal ends Sunday, the 20th of March, okay? All right, we got a few minutes, so we're going to talk about some uh, foods that are going to help you out and help you function better. Some herbs are in there, too. Uh, these foods and herbs supply strength to your body. Uh, they also provide a heat source or an energy source and provides the body's uh, ability to repair cells and regenerate organs. Okay? So herbs are foods. They're not drugs. So we want to look at that direction. The health, uh, health and healing of the nation comes from herbs, according to the good book. Herbs are here for the service of man, Psalms. 104, verse 14, so let's tap into that power, shall we? First, let's look at some blood builders. Uh, if we take a look at some herbs and foods that help us build healthy blood, and blood is the life force, brings in nutrition and oxygen to the cells, and takes away toxins and debris. So you got to have a healthy blood source. And I've mentioned this before, that beets, really excellent source of natural iron to help build up your blood system. So your body requires specific nutrition to help make those red blood cells and also distribute oxygen and other nutrients to your cells. So transporting these nutrients requires resources to deliver that nutrition and also take away any waste product and debris. And it also helps you keep a proper pH level. A good balanced blood pH is great for regulating not only your body temperature, but also in avoiding blood clots. So the excuse me, the synthetic supplements, I'll get it out, that are on the market aren't going to do the same as raw beets, okay? So I would uh, definitely check out a juicer and juice some raw beets, and you can, you know, you can mix it with your vegetable juice and, uh, and do it that way if you like. Um, very uh, rich in minerals, so... Raw beet juice kind of tastes mentality, so I like to mix it with, you know, like a V8 or something like that. Uh, but you're also going to get in with those beets. Um, you're going to get uh, your B complex, your vitamin C and E, bioflavonoids, folic acid, um, calcium, iron, silicon, copper, magnesium, natural iodine and phosphorus, zinc, potassium, manganese, nitrogen, and sulfur. So these are all designed to help your blood and to uh, help your heart and also your blood vessels. And you're also going to find a lot of these mineral-rich nutrients in beer's yeast, garlic, wheat germ, chlorophyll, alfalfa, buckwheat, olives, watercress, blackberry, uh, parsley, figs, uh, grape juice, a lot of people like grape juice, hawthorn berry, ginger root, poke root, sassafras, burdock root, chaparral, echinacea root, red clover, oat straw, and those hot habanero cayenne peppers. Mm-mm-mm. Those are the ones that look like little oranges, uh, like little orange pumpkins, the habaneros. They're hotter than their jalapeno. Well, let's just jump over to the brain because there are some foods that help the brain, what you need is to support your brain function is phosphorus-rich foods. And the extra benefit is that these phosphorus foods will also nourish your nerve endings and your glands. So when you use plants that have phosphorus, you also help will build a bone, healthy bone. 
So I like to use herbs like valerian root, hops, skullcap, lobelia. Um, I don't like the animal phosphorus so much, um, but if you're going to use some of that, you can use eggs, uh, codfish, those kind of animal foods, and you'll get those phosphorus-rich nutrients. Um, so this is really good for the nerve impulses to enhance your sensory perception, your motor coordination. Um, so you want to look for um, foods that have a lot of B-complex uh, folic acid in there, and uh, so those are going to do it for you. Now, what about muscle energy foods? Wow, well, we got lots to choose from. Uh, the men out there require more protein and healthy fats than our females since they have more muscle mass and require more blood volume. One drop of blood from a male contains one million more red blood cells compared to one drop of female blood. So the energy foods will be carbohydrates that are on the sweet side, and they have to be chewed well and absorbed um, in, to have the nutrition absorbed correctly. So when you chew, you also secrete uh, more saliva, and it helps with the starch-digesting enzymes. So if you masticate your food well, in the raw foods as well, too, will strengthen your jaw muscle and improve your digestive enzymes. So um, foods that help your muscles are going to have lots of B-complex, vitamin D, E, and A, um, pantholenic acid, calcium, potassium, magnesium. So you want to look for herbs like uh, bananas, sprouts, um, lima beans, uh, bran, uh, apples, uh, whole grains, and herbs that are going to be rich are going to be juniper berries, rosemary, horseradish, cabbage, kelp, dulse, horsetail, and black walnut. I also like to add for energy reasons that cayenne habanero and improves the circulation and reduces a lot of stress on the system. So that way you'll have a lot of um, power. If you want to add your echinaceas for immune boosting and astragalus root or mullein to help the glands out, you can also factor all that good stuff in as well. So in a nutshell, there are really generally a lot of daily requirements that we see. Um, they say for muscles, you need 20 ounces of carbs from starches, and for the heart, you know, to keep your body warm, 3% uh, phosphate. You need a gallon of liquid to hydrate your system. So a lot of bulk foods with cellulose fiber also absorbs a lot of that water. So um, you want to make sure you get balance. And do not look at the, you know, dietitian food pyramid because that is totally wrong. Uh, so whole foods, nuts, seeds, whole grains, uh, lean meats, um, and uh, more filtered water and less um, alcohol and caffeine. And, uh, of course, your fruits and vegetables also going to be great. So um, you know what to do. And try to eat foods in their original packaging. So, you know, you know, apples instead of apple juice. You know, just eat an apple, a lot of fiber there, pectin, and you'll lose 10 pounds over a year if you eat an apple a day. You talk about keeping, you know, doctor away. You'll, you'll keep them all away. Thepowerherbs.com. Check out the body food mix if you need a little help, a little scoop in a smoothie or juice, and you got a rockin' nutrition. And it's all plant-based and organic. So thepowerherbs.com. Check out body foundation food mix. And uh, it's one of the best sellers there. So there you go. I'm about out of time. And while you're there, don't forget, sign up for the newsletters. There you go out each week. More empowerment. 
Can't stop that. Oh, the information presented is not intended to diagnose, treat, prevent, or cure disease, so seek medical advice, if you dare, from a licensed medical physician before using any product or therapy. I'm your herbalist, Wendy Wilson. Until next time, be well. Prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, and Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971, when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. Alfred Adisk, and this is the Wednesday night edition of Financial Survival for Wednesday, 16th day of March, year of our Lord, 2016. James Corbett from the Corbett Report is scheduled to join us after the first break. And in the meantime, I'll give you an idea what happened in the markets today and also add a few comments of my own. Gold was up $30.30 today (laughs) in the New York markets. Um, closed out at $1,263.10 per ounce. Silver was up 35 cents. All right. Proportionally, it was almost as much as uh, gold was up 2.46%. Silver was up 2.26%, 35 cents to $15.70 an ounce. Platinum was up 20 bucks. Palladium was up $13.00. Also, 2.09%, 2.29%. All of the precious metals were up over 2% for one day. Uh, Dow Jones was up 74 points to 17,326. NASDAQ was up 35 points to 4,764. Uh, New York Stock Exchange up 70 points, 10,084. 
the New York the uh, the U.S. dollar index um, was up almost a full point to ninety five point seven one. Um, the new crude oil up two dollars and change uh, to thirty nine thirty seven dollars and eighty some cents. Um, the big story to me was that the U.S. dollar index dropped almost a full point today. And I think that accounts for, I think it's certainly part of the reason why gold and the rest of the precious metals increased as much as they did. And I think there's a lesson in this, maybe. And the possible lesson is that our government has allowed deflation to make the dollar stronger for most of the past two years. And once it became clear that at least on the international market, the dollar was deflating, I couldn't understand it, <clears throat> at least not initially. And I'm not sure that I understand it even now. Because deflation is the worst thing in the world for debtors. But it's great for creditors. You know, if you're going to buy a house and people tell you the great thing about buying a house because there's inflation least for most of my lifetime. And that means you can pay off your mortgage with cheaper dollars. If you take out a mortgage for a quarter of a million dollars, you're going to repay a quarter of a million dollars plus interest. But during a period of inflation, when you get to the end of that quarter million dollars, you might be making a monthly payment of, say, $1,000 a month. Well, if we've had significant inflation from when you took the loan until you're finally paying the loan, the last months and years that you're paying on that loan, you're paying $1,000 a month. But in terms of purchasing power, you might only be paying $800 a month as compared to the value of the dollars that you borrowed in the first place. Inflation allows you to pay off your debts with cheaper dollars. And it's one of the incentives for people to borrow money and go ahead and build that house. Deflation works exactly the opposite. If a period of deflation takes place after you've borrowed the quarter million dollars to build the house, during that period of deflation, you're going to be repaying your debts with dollars that are more valuable than the dollars. They have greater purchasing power than the dollars that you borrowed in the first place. And the net result of deflation, it actually increases the cost of borrowing. And in some instances, it's enough to put people into bankruptcy. They can't afford. Ultimately, they can't. They they took out as big a loan as they could possibly afford, a quarter million dollars. And when the, when the currency starts to become more valuable, the dollar becomes stronger. They wind up having to pay back more than they possibly can, even though they're still paying back the same thousand dollars a month on the, uh, you know, on the mortgage. But it's the thousand dollars after deflation that might have twelve hundred dollars purchasing power. Now it could only have a thousand fifty dollars. It might have eleven hundred. There's no telling where it's going to fit in there. But the point is, instead of paying off with cheaper dollars you're paying off with more expensive dollars. Who's the biggest debtor in the world? 
And the answer is the government of the United States, which owes at least $19 trillion that they admit to. John Williams says they owe $100 trillion or thereabouts. Congressional Budget Office and economist Lawrence Kotlikoff have said the, the total national debt is in excess of $200 trillion. Ten times what the government currently admits in the official national debt. Now, regardless of what the size of the debt really is, when we go into an era, era of, uh, of deflation, that, doubt, that debt grows larger because they have to pay off the debt with more valuable, more expensive dollars. The government's already in such a bind, it can't afford, or at least it should not tolerate deflation. And if it does, it can't uh, tolerate it for long. So when we went into an era of deflation, at least on the international markets, it seemed incomprehensible to me that the government would allow that to happen, at least initially. Over time, I came to believe that because that deflation is largely measured on the U.S. dollar index, and the U.S. dollar index is a teeter-totter, where we have the U.S. dollar sitting on one end of the teeter-totter, and half a dozen other currencies, including the euro, the yen, uh, Swedish kroner, Swiss franc, uh, I don't remember what the other ones are. But there's six currencies sitting on the other end of that teeter-totter. And when they inflate, they go through inflation and go up, the dollar must go down into deflation. And likewise, when the dollar goes up into inflation, they must go down into deflation. Now, the reason this is significant is, is that all of the central bankers have believed for years that it was important to cause some certain minimal amount of inflation in order to stimulate an economy. But the relationship of the United States dollar to the foreign currencies, it, it caused, it guaranteed that if we caused inflation to our currencies, the United States dollar, it would necessarily cause deflation for the, for the other six currencies, at least on averages. On average, they're sitting on the other end of that U.S. dollar index teeter-totter. And in order to stimulate their economies, what I think happened for 18 of the last 24 months is that our government said, okay, we're going to bite the bullet. We are going to accept a certain level of of deflation for the U.S. dollar in order to allow you people in Europe, for example, to enjoy some inflation that might stimulate your fragile economy. I don't know that's what happened, but I think that's the deal that was probably made. And therefore, our government made a significant sacrifice, took an interesting risk by allowing deflation to take place with the U.S. dollar and thereby cause inflation that would, in theory, stimulate the European economy, the Japanese economy, and perhaps hold the global economy together. In the last few days, in the last week or so, and maybe even since the first of the year, if you, were to, if you can judge by the price of gold, which is up 19 20% since the first of the year, that's evidence of inflation. And when we see days like today, $30 up for gold, 
That's evidence of inflation. And particularly when we look down at the U.S. dollar index and find out that it fell almost a full point during trading today. That's evidence of inflation. It's not proof, but it's evidence. And I'm looking at this spectacular increase in the price of gold, 19% thereabouts, in the first two and a half months of the year. I'm looking at that, and I'm thinking that government has finally decided to stop the deflation. Government is now acting in its own self-interest and saying, we're not going to let any more deflation take place. It's too much trouble. We can't pay our debts. We've got to have inflation. We're having inflation, and if that means the Europeans and the Japanese and whoever, if their currencies deflate and it pushes them into a depression, too bad for them. Can I prove that theory? Nope. Cannot. But it's the only thing I've been able to understand in a year and a half, two years now, that made any sense to me. Um, Why did our government allow deflation? And this is not, you know, this deflationary period we've had for the last 18, 24 months, this isn't just a little aberration or bump in the road. You can hear the commercials on this program and point out that the price, the dollar's value has fallen by over 95% since 1971 when we went into a pure fiat currency. In relationship to gold, the dollar has gone down, 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 down in purchasing power, lost over 95%. That's evidence of inflation. More, given that it's gone on since 1971 until the last two years, 2014, that's evidence of something like over 40 years of persistent policy where the government is making inflation happen, making inflation happen, making inflation happen until about two years ago when they decided, no, we're going to make deflation happening, happen. The inflation serves the government's interest because the government is the biggest debtor on earth, and thanks to inflation, it gets to repay its debts with cheaper dollars. The deflation is absolutely, I mean, deflation left, you let the deflation go long enough, and the government will have to admit that it can't pay its debts. And when that happens, I don't know where it all goes, but I guarantee you it won't be you know, a little bump in the road. It won't be a casual event. Um, Deflation threatens the government. Inflation threatens the dollar. If you allow the inflation, as we pointed out, the the purchasing power of the dollar has fallen by over 95% in the past since since 1971. It's going to come to 96%. Then it's going to come to 97% lost in terms of purchasing power, then 98%, 99%. Pretty soon, you are sitting on the edge of 100%. When the dollar has lost virtually all of its purchasing power, then it's not even worth a nickel as compared to what it was. might not even be worth a penny compared to what it was back in 1971. Somewhere around that point, people are going to say, I don't want any more dollars. And then the dollar dies. Inflation will kill the dollar. Deflation will kill the debtors and the government of the United States being the world's largest debtor. It will be, it will suffer great harm at the hands of deflation. So 
I'm looking at today's $30 jump in the price of gold, and I'm looking at today's one-point fall in the U.S. dollar index, and it's evidence. It's not proof, but it's evidence that maybe we have, that the government has decided enough of this deflationary sacrifice. We can't stand the heat. Um, If Europe and Japan can't make it, too bad for them. We're going to go back and cause dollar inflation. And if we do, it'll cause deflation for some or all of those six currencies on the other end of the teeter board on the U.S. dollar or on the the U.S. dollar index. Uh, Is it absolutely going to happen? No. But if it is happening, if the idea is roughly correct, it means that the price of gold is going to start to jump significantly and persistently over the course of the next several years. And when gold was in, it's clearly in a bull market uh, coming into 2011. Every year, the price of gold went up about 20%. And it was at a time when we were trying to cause inflation, when the government wanted us to have inflation. And a rising price for gold is good evidence that inflation is taking place. When the government sits back and says, oh, we're trying to cause inflation, but in fact the price of gold is falling, that's evidence of deflation. And one of the things that crosses my mind is that the government can't, it can't provide reliable evidence. The world will understand and accept and believe that there's inflation while the price of gold is still falling. If the, gold want, if the government wants inflation, if the government needs inflation, if the government is threatened by deflation, then it has to go back. It has to go back to that inflation. And they've got to make people believe it. And one of the ways they make them believe it is by allowing the price of gold to go higher and higher. Now, that 20 cent, 20% more or less per year struck me as fairly steady, and it struck me that that was the limit that the government would allow back in the day, prior to 2011. Gold peaked at 1900 and change. Um, They would allow 20% then. I suspect, who knows, if we're going back into another inflationary era, it may well be that the government will allow 20% per year inflation for uh, uh, 20% per year increase in the price of gold in order to demonstrate that inflation is real. But again, if they're going to suppress the price of gold and they need inflation, they can't convince the public that they have caused significant inflation or that significant inflation is present unless the price of gold is going up. So, I'm looking at it, and I'm I'm looking at the evidence I see, and for me, it's it strikes it, it seems to me that this is evidence that the uh, that we're on the verge of significant inflation. Again, government has decided to cause it, and whether they're going to just manipulate numbers or how they're going to do this is not clear to me. But it does appear that they it appears possible that they've decided to start uh, uh, causing inflation. And if they have, price of gold is going to rise. And if that's true, and it'll rise faster than inflation as people flock to it as a safe haven. Uh, If you want to make a profit, 
on the wealth you have, there's a good chance that it can be done by purchasing gold and silver, especially at this point in time. We're going to take a break for some commercial announcements. When we come back, James Corbett from the Corbett Report will be calling in from Japan, and we'll get James's opinions on what's happening in geopolitics today. Please stay tuned to Financial Survival. We'll be right back. obligations or relationship problems have you feeling stressed out when life is too much to handle use apothecary herbs emotional stress formula feel calm and more in control with herbs especially combined to provide the organic nutrition your system needs to help you cope complete instructions for maximum benefit and a money-back guarantee you've waited long enough call apothecary herbs now toll free 866-229-3663 That's 866-229-3663. International callers dial 704-875-8010 or order online at the 3Ws.thepowerherbs.com. Since the beginning of the United States, kings have sought it, nations have fought for it, It has been traded, borrowed, purchased, and stolen. There is a reason for it. To secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, invest with the security of gold and silver. Call Discount Gold and Silver Trading at 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Listen to Financial Survival with your host, Melody Cedarstrom, on American Voice Radio Network and Shortwave Radio. Visit DiscountGoldAndSilverTrading.net or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. For the very best in gold and silver trading, call toll-free 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Call now. American Voice Radio Network is heard on Galaxy 19 at 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices. I'm Alfred Adesk, and this is Financial Survival, and our guest is James Corbett, C-O-R-B-E-T-T, from the CorbettReport.com, C-O-R-B-E-T-T, Report.com. Um, James is certainly one of the most uh, 
Uh, he, he has a, a voice that's growing in the United States and globally, and uh, certainly one of the most prolific commentators on mm, geopolitics and what's going on from the what's going on in the entire world. Hello, James. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well today. How are you doing? Good. Got an article here from CNBC, and the headline is Donald Trump's rise. Sparks alarm in Japan. The political elite in Tokyo is starting to confront a disconcerting idea that their indispensable U.S. ally could actually elect Donald Trump as president. <laughs> the controversial businessman, now favorite for the favored uh, to win the Republican nomination, hits Japan regularly in his stump speeches for supposedly unfair trade practices and free-riding and free riding on U.S. military predictions. Now, how much of this is news and how much of this is just noise? Is Trump really sparking any alarm in Japan, or is that just something CNBC has claimed to sell a couple of uh, newspapers or TV com- uh, commercials? Well, this one actually might have a bit of a basis in reality. It is at least being reported in the actual Japanese media here. The Young uh-huh. Nation, one of the major newspapers here, just had a story on this. And I think the reason why this is being reported and being taken seriously is because uh, Trump has specifically talked about making the uh, J- Japan Japanese government pay for the U.S. military presence in Japan, which would be a huge change to the, the military relationship there and one that obviously uneases and makes uneasy the, the, the military relationship that's been in place since basically the end of the, the Second World War. So I think that worries some people. I've heard uh, some quotes from, from certain diplomats saying that uh, they don't think this is going to fundamentally undermine the military relationship between the U.S. and Japan, even if Trump does get into power. But it's still a worrying sign and also probably more importantly politically at least at this particular moment is the uh the, the talk that trump has uh had about the tpp and the fact that he might scrap that which trans-pacific be, partnership yes sorry the trans-pacific yep. partnership the trade deal that just went into place between mm-hmm. I believe it was 13 asian nations asian uh, pacific rim nations and uh, Japan was set to benefit from that, at least in terms of its auto industry. There's some other deals in there, but its auto industry specifically was looking for greater access to American markets. And Trump is talking the other way, protectionism. So um, they don't like that talk uh, at all. I was talking to Greg Hunter. We interviewed him Tuesday, uh, yesterday. And Greg was saying that the Trans-Pacific Partnership Will the terms of the Trans-Pacific Partnership will be kept secret for five years before the public has access to the details of whatever this trade agreement is? Now, assuming that that's true, you can correct me if that's wrong, but assuming that's true, how can the Trans-Pacific Partnership be good for America if they won't let us see what it says for five years? Well, I would have to see what he's going on there because the actual text of the TPP agreement itself has been released. And I've talked about it on my website. I've linked to it. I had an article up um, back in November when it was first released, three of the worst TPP clauses explained in plain English, which actually talks about some of those clauses. And of course, the ridiculous legalese that they're framed in that you have to read through 17 times and understand 14 different, you know, codes of, mm-hmm. of law in order mm-hmm. to get a grasp of. But as far as I know, the text is out there in the open. So I don't know if there might be 
appendices and different uh, side agreements that uh, that may be under wraps. But as far as I know, the actual text is available. Uh, do you think it's good or bad? And for who? It'll be good for some people and bad exactly. for others. Yeah. Well, so who's I mean, going to win and who's going to lose? As we would expect with this free trade agreement and most other free trade agreements, it's not about free trade per se. It's about what trade will be regulated and how and by whom and under what conditions. And so generally the winners in these types of agreements are always big business at the expense of small business, if for no other reason than it usually puts in new regulatory and bureaucratic hurdles that are cumbersome for small businesses and are obviously that's what big businesses thrive on because they can then weed out the smaller competition that can't afford all the legalese lawyers and paperwork. Um, I think that, uh, th I mean, there's a mixed bag in here for different sectors and there are different um, sectors of different societies that are, that are uh, against it and for it. And in Japan specifically, uh, farmers are worried about uh, basically allowing uh, competitive produce in, especially rice and other things that have been protect protected here in Japan, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> protected for quite some time. Um, but uh, on the other hand, you have, for example, car manufacturers in Japan excited about greater access to American markets and things of that nature. So it is, it is on a case-by-case -case basis. A lot of different people got a different, different things out of it. But as I say, I think generally speaking, big business wins here at the expense of everyone else. Yeah. You mentioned the legal technicalities and the legal language and the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and how you had to read it 17 times to find, to discern the 14 different meanings. Do you know what the root meaning of the word read is historically? I do not. You'll have to tell me. Guessing. Uh -huh. Reading means guessing. All right? And that makes a lot of sense at first glance. Most people, what are you talking about? How can that be? It makes a lot of sense because every word, or almost every word, has multiple definitions. And because each word has multiple definitions, you, when you're reading, you have to guess at what definition probably applies as you're reading through the sentence. But when you get into legalese, they go through all of this effort to try to control their definitions and their language in order to pin it down, because otherwise that ambiguity is there in virtually everything you read. So reading yeah. is guessing. Yeah, right? It makes perfect yeah. sense. And yeah, for anyone it, who's actually tried writing something for general public consumption, I think mm -hmm. you understand that intuitively, because yeah. you might write one thing and suddenly people are reading it in a different way that you didn't intend. Yeah. And you think, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it really makes reading almost mystical in some regards in writing. <laughs> it's a little bit like sorcery. Mm -hmm. How do you come yeah, I don't want to get all words. philosophical on you, but this is postmodernism in a nutshell. I mean, the idea that it's the reader that constructs meaning every time the text is read. And there is something to that. I think, as we say, I mean, there's, every word has multiple possible meanings in different That's contexts. Right. You take a five-word sentence, and if each word has three possible meanings, the number of potential meanings for that sentence, I believe, is five to the third. Huh? Something the mathematical... Like that. <laughs> You know, the just multiple. We got three for the first word, three possible second word, three yeah. for the third, three for the fourth. All right. Um, the number of possible meanings is extraordinary, and it's really amazing that we still we manage to read. I mean, how yeah. they ever got yeah, this exactly. started? Well, I so said, much, so much of transferal of meaning is contextual. So we yeah. all 
kind of assume that we know that we're working from the same context. So when we use a certain word, we're using it in a context that we assume the other person will understand. But of course, in legal documents, you can't do that. You have to spell it all out. So that's why they get in. I mean, of course, it just creates an industry for the lawyers. But if you want an example of the TPP legalese, um, chapter nine, the investment chapter in article 9.18.1, it says, if an investment dispute has not been resolved within six months of the receipt by the respondent of a written request for consultations pursuant to Article 9.17.2, that the claimant has incurred loss or damage by reason of or arising out of that breach, and provided that the claimant may submit pursuant to sub etc., etc. You get the idea. But this, this is actually an extremely important clause because it's in, uh, talking about the investor state dispute settlement mechanism by which the uh, uh, companies that are wronged, so to speak, under this treaty will be able to sue governments for their restrictive regulations that cut into their trade. So that's a pretty important thing. But if you actually just read the paragraph that it's that's talking about it, I mean, 99.9% of the population would have no idea what it's talking about. And even if you do have an idea, your idea is not absolutely clarified until you spend, you have to invest some time to unravel that maze. And one of the things that I do, I, I, read, I read case law periodically and whatever. Um, I spot sentences in legalese that will run in terms of most 200 words in a single sentence. 130, 170 words in a single sentence. What level of reading do you think, you know, what, what, are you a high school graduate? Can a high school graduate read a 150-word sentence? Can a college graduate read a 150-word sentence and understand what it means? I mean, this is the language of some extraordinarily sophisticated minds. And from my perspective, every time you see one of these enormous sentences that's telling you something is hidden, they've got a needle hidden in that haystack, and they're hoping that only a handful of people will be smart enough to see what that needle is. I've got another article on Trump. Says neocon panic, Trump presidency would end New World Order. <laughs> As eccentric billionaire Republican presidential hopeful Donald Trump continues to rack up primary victories, the party's establishment is beginning to wonder whether the political outsider can be stopped. Alarmed, neoconservative pundit Ann Applebaum goes so far as to suggest. That a Trump presidency would mark the end of the West as we know it. Is this a little hyperbolic, or is, uh, is, is Trump actually does he threaten to destroy the world? Is that what this is, or not? No, but perhaps the the uh, the rising of the Trump candidacy is a reflection of the collapse of the West that is taking that. place. So I see this really as a manifestation of the disenfranchisement that people really feel in their real everyday lives, economically, socially, culturally. Mm -hmm. And that has been growing to a breaking point in the last several years. And I think we saw that in 2007, 2008, the the, uh, Lehman collapse. We saw huge protests uh, coming up, both the Tea Party movement on the right and the Occupy movement on the left. And I think they had a lot of shared ideas between them, that they were pointing to the, the, the establishment party candidates as being the problem. And so I think this is a a reflection of that. Uh, I think in 2008, the left was suckered in with the Obama hope and change. And I think in 2016, the right is being suckered in by Trump. 
that it is supposed to represent, oh, it's going to be this fundamental change. And, you know, they're putting all their hopes in this. And I, I don't think that's going to be the answer. But I certainly understand why this phenomenon is taking place. I do find it worrying because in this 2016 go round, we are seeing the violence, uh, violent reaction to this being raised repeatedly and dwelled on in the media, which is amplifying things and which is coming to a head now with these rallies and the protesters. And it does have a dark feeling to it because we have seen that divide and conquer narrative of black versus white and man versus woman and straight versus gay and all of these different divisions in society being played on for years and years now. And I think that is coming to a head where we're starting to see the culture war turning into an maybe less of a metaphorical war and into a real civil war. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think there is there is the element of that there. And it certainly could become that. We have an article here that deals with uh, CBS's Bob Schieffer, veteran newsman Bob Schieffer, former anchor of CBS Face the Nation, is convinced that after the 2016 election, the Republican Party will no, will be no more. According to Schieffer, on the Republican side, uh, what we're seeing here is a changing of the guard. If Trump wins the nomination before the convention, it will turn the Republican Party on its ear. On the other hand, if it goes to an open convention, he says if Trump wins this thing up front without even with, before they get to the convention, it's going to wreck the, the Republican establishment. On the other hand, if it goes to an open convention, it will be a bloody fight that could break the party into two parties. In either case, the Republican Party, we used to know, will be replaced by something new. Does that sound credible to you or, uh, again, hyperbole? Mm, there, I, there is something to it. I think there is a possibility here. Certainly, we are seeing a, an overturning of all political uh, you know, assumed the, the way the political game is being played. It, it certainly is being overturned right now. And I think there's going to be a lesson to be learned from this, however it plays out. I see it playing out in one of a couple of different ways. I guess one is that the Republican Party establishment does try to kick back in some way, whether that's a brokered convention, which I don't think is Likely, uh, there has been even the uh, the talk floated around of uh, a third party or independent candidate with Republicans getting behind that and, and sort of uh, splitting the, the party. Of course, either way, that basically guarantees that Hillary is going Hillary. to become president. And I so, I mean, which again, which I've always I might remember, I said on this program months ago that I've always thought Trump was a ringer for Hillary. So anyway, interesting. Um or I guess the other idea is that the Republicans really do just kind of give up and rally around Trump and say, okay, he's our man now. But in that event, if Trump doesn't win the election, it really could hurt the Republicans' chances in the long run in terms of, uh, the, I mean, there'd have to be some significant soul searching. Okay, we've tried the establishment candidates and Romney and putting McCain and people like that up before, and that didn't work. And when now we've tried the complete other direction and that didn't work. I mean, that would that would be a serious crisis point. So I think... We are at an inflection point and, and within the Democratic Party. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many times I've seen on left wing sites talking about, oh, we'll have to hold our nose and vote for Hillary because, you know, we don't want Trump. So I don't think I, I don't think either party is going to come out of this unscathed. There, there are going to be changes. It's just a question of what form they take and how the establishment attempts to win people back. I think the American people feel betrayed by both parties. And it's not just a question of frustration. It's not just a question of I'm not, I don't have a job right now. All right. And I'm, I don't, I can't make the mortgage payment. It's not just that. 
We could accept that, I think, as a people, if we understood the causes were external to this country and uh, things happen. All right, you get over it. You get on with your life. We're not dealing with things happen, happening. We're dealing with a government that seems to be bent on treason. They are moving in directions that are clearly contrary to the best interests of the American people, and they've been doing it for decades. But the people are catching up. They're beginning to realize this, and they're mad at the government. And if you'd like to respond to that, why don't you save it until after we get done with our commercials? I'm Alfred Adiska uh, here with our, our, our guest, uh, James Corbett, and we are going to take a break for some commercials, and we'll be right back on Financial Survival. Please stay tuned. condition and emergency rooms and medical doctors are not an option, you need our emergency heart attack kit. Five concentrated liquid formulas enter the system in 60 seconds to protect your heart muscle, strengthen heartbeat, increase circulation, relieve pain, and make breathing easier. When seconds count, you want all the help you can get with our emergency heart attack kit. Easy to use and portable in a one-pound compact kit for your purse, briefcase, or car. Call Apothecary Herbs now for your emergency heart attack kit, toll-free, 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International callers dial 704-875-8010 or order online at the 3 wsthepowerherbscom Prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, and Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971 when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit discount gold and silver trading at dgscoins.com. That's dgscoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. I'm Alfred Addis, here with James Corbett from the CorbettReport.com. That's C-O-R-B-E-T-T Report.com. And as we broke for commercials, we're talking about the mindset of the American people. And I'm suggesting that they're not just frustrated because they're having a difficult time or they're unemployed or whatever. They're frustrated because the game is rigged by our government to favor certain special interests, major corporations that we talked about in the uh, uh, 
can't even think of the last name of it, but in any case, the treaty, partnership treaty. Um, they're feeling that the game is rigged, and that makes them angry. They don't mind, they don't like losing, but they don't mind losing in a fair game. But they're angry because it seems to be rigged. Do you see that also, or do you agree, disagree? What do you think? I, I do. I think so. Uh, I think there's more distrust of government, dislike for government than ever before. All the polls yeah. show this with uh, the approval ratings uh, for Congress, for even just uh, establishment media, which is why, I mean, it's interesting to watch the, the, the anti-Trump, the, the Trump response, the response to Trump, because it, it seems to me to be the flailing out of an establishment that doesn't quite understand that it has lost its power to simply label things as, oh, that's extreme. We can't do that. Uh, People don't care. And that's, it almost makes me think, uh, uh, well, is this some sort of false flag by the establishment? Surely they know by now that if you get Mitt Romney out saying, don't vote for Trump, (laughs) then more people are going to vote for Trump. I mean, no one in the Republican Party. Maybe they don't, though. You know, maybe they don't. They, maybe they're they, really they, that clueless. The establishment was established by people who were very intelligent, very shrewd, and they left their their seat at the table to their children. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah they there is that know what's going on. It may be the yeah. second or third generation, and yeah, they yeah, we're the you know we're the establishment. How do you spell the word? You know, I, I mean, right, exactly. Yeah, no, yeah. I mean, there is an element to that, and it does make sense from that third generation perspective they say that by the rich families will lose their fortune by the third generation well you look at prescott bush uh, down to george hw bush down to george w and jeb i mean at least george w could be elected president jeb is i mean just a laughing stock so yeah i mean there is there is actually an element to that among the 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 sort of west the eastern establishment but uh but i think there's another way of looking at this as well it's not just the people's anger at the government it's unfortunately i think again a lot of this anger is being um directed sideways at people's neighbors, basically. It's it's putting people against each other. And I I had a conversation recently with David D. Friedman. He's an economist and a law professor. Um, He was talking about the social contract, not as a voluntary contract that you would enter into in business, which is the way that a lot of libertarians and anarchist-leading people would look at it as, well, this is why it's not valid, because I never signed it, but more as a peace treaty. Ultimately, it's the idea that people will feed themselves to to be ruled by a government in order to establish the peace, uh, at least a semblance of peace between the warring factions in society. And from that perspective, it seems like the social con- uh, contract is breaking down now, that the yeah. discrepancy between what the people on the left and the people on the right want is getting to that breaking point where they're not willing to live under each other's governments anymore, which means that there's a, a fundamental fight taking place here. And if we are at that type of moment, I mean, that's where, I mean, again, I keep coming back to the word civil war. And I don't know, I, don't, I mean, I'm not expecting something like the 18, 1860s here, but I am, I really think something fundamental is breaking here in terms of the way that American society is structured and European society for that matter. I think it's the perception of fairness. I think it's the idea, I mean, we can all accept the idea that you got a chance to get rich in this country if you want to. And we allegedly have an equal chance. If you've got the the talent, the brains, the work ethic, and the rest of that, you can prosper. But what people are beginning to suspect is, no, it's not that way. We are increasingly in a situation like the former Soviet Union with that joke, they pretend to pay us, we pretend to work. We understand the game is rigged, and there's no point in busting your back in order to try to get ahead because 
Will they have things like the Trans-Pacific Partnership that will make it easier for the multinational corporations to get rich and harder for small operators to even get started? That's the sort of thing that has to make some people angry. And I think that anger, Trump tapped into it. A lot of people blaming Trump. Say, oh, my gosh, Trump has caused all this anger and violence. And I think Trump didn't cause it. I think he just tapped into it. It's already there. And he was the first I, one to give it a name and recognize it and say, yeah, it's real. Does that make any sense to you? Oh, I, I, I completely agree. It makes perfect sense. And, and really, I think of it as the further... I mean, we've seen this building up for years now, and I think the, the early signs of it would have been 2008, 2012 with the Ron Paul phenomenon. But that phenomenon obviously came and went with the elections themselves, and uh, the campaign for liberty ended up just supporting a bunch of Tea Party candidates that didn't do much in Senate. And I, a lot of that energy seemed to be dissipated and wasted. I think this is recapturing the public's imagination, but along, uh, well, not, not the same lines, but I think it's the similar idea that you're talking about there, the mm-hmm. disillusion with the yeah. The idea of fairness. I've got an article from Sovereign Investor, and the headline is $10 oil will trigger economic collapse. Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley expect oil to plummet to $20 a barrel. This article is five days old. They expect uh, Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley expect oil to plummet to 20 bucks a barrel, and Royal Bank of Scotland says $16 oil is on the horizon. Both British Bank Standard Chartered and energy expert Dr. Gary Schilling warned we need to get ready for $10 oil. Now, this article is five days old. Uh, Oil has been jumping, you know, in the last little while. It's had a remarkable increase in price. Do you think we're going to see $10 a barrel oil in in the foreseeable future? Or are these people just, you know, are they... Unless they know something I don't, which is possible, mm-hmm. but I certainly don't see it going down to $10. Uh, I, no, don't, I don't know if the recent uh, jump has is sustainable at this point. As I've said, I think, for the last several months pretty consistently, I think it's supply is mostly baked into the cake for at least this year. I don't think we're going to see a significant jump up in price this year, certainly, and maybe not even next year. Um, but having said that, I, I, I absolutely, yeah, I don't see it going that much lower than, say, where it, I mean, it tested the $30 mark um, earlier this uh, last month. Um, I, I don't think that it's going to get much below that point. I don't see it going down to $10, no. Uh-huh. Got another one here that deals with this indirectly. This is an article at Terraforming Terra. And the article headline is Preparing for the Collapse of the Petrodollar System. And he says, and the author of the article says, we are entering the age of free energy. Do meditate on that idea. I know one of several ways presently extent that and additionally know how to create a massive power generator using only the potential in the atmosphere itself. None of this demands fuel. Well, the point being that we are entering some sort of an era where at least alternative energy is coming into, coming to bear. I mean, the Tesla motor car is evidence that something's going to happen. We're going to see elect, electrical vehicles that don't run on combustion engines in the near future, and there'll be more. We'll see more of them. We're not, you know, um, and it should result in less demand for petroleum. Uh, if petroleum demand falls, 
Will it take the petrodollar with it? If petroleum demand falls? Yeah, the demand for petroleum falls and and we have alternative energy supplies. He's arguing the age of free energy is upon us. I'm not convinced that's true. It may be. I know a lot of people are pushing that idea, but I've yet to see it really work right. happen of the test exactly i believe it when i see it yeah. yeah i believe it when i'll see it yeah I, I don't doubt that we will see it but we haven't seen it yet um yeah. and maybe well, we'll I, never yeah, see it. yeah maybe there's i don't doubt that it's possible is it a fantasy exactly i uh, i, I it, let's put it this way whether or not it is a fantasy it's a fantasy to imagine that it's going to be allowed to happen um easily by the establishment that exists because of course the entire infrastructure of the world runs on the energy of petroleum but not even just that i mean it's the idea of any sort of i mean nuclear interests or any sort of power generation still relies on this idea of a centralized you know large-scale industrial operation for producing Mm -hmm. the energy that's needed for industrial production and to imagine that we could break that down so that you know people can get free energy i mean it's just that would fundamentally completely changed not only the course of 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 america or the 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 industrialized world but the human civilization itself i mean that would be an absolutely unimaginable event and and one that would potentially be for the good Um, but again that's why i think there's so much riding on that the 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 fortunes and the wealth of so many people ride on that, that that i have no doubt there's been a lot of advances towards that that have been suppressed and would continue to be suppressed so I, again, I'll believe it when I see it and when it's happening, and I, you know, I'll, I'll welcome it with open arms. Trust me. But uh, on the idea of alternative energies, again, so much of that is a lot of snake oil that's being sold right now. I mean, there's, I mean, hope in wind generation and things like that, which really have have not lived up to the promise. And there's a lot of rhetoric about it, but uh, not a lot of actual, um, not a real threat to the existing uh, energy monopolies. So, what do you think the question? Think? If the question is. Go ahead. Uh, well, I was going to say, if the, if the question is, will uh, declining petroleum demand uh, as alternative energies come online, will that uh, undermine the petrodollar? I think so. I think the petrodollar, I mean, pe- petroleum really is only part of the, uh, the, the backing at this point, I think, for the dollar and the, the, the system that was set up in the 70s. I think that's been eroded over time, and I think now it's, uh, it's a lot more a lot more of just the, the the sort of military enforcement of the U.S. around the world that that really uh, upholds that system. So I I do see that the petrodollar itself is of less and less importance and will probably continue to be in coming decades. What about the carbon tax? Is that not just a tax, but it does it lay the does it lay the foundation that we can treat carbon one way or another as a replacement for the petrodollar? You follow what I'm saying, or is the yeah, carbon tax I mean, ultimately yes, based on right. burning petroleum and uh, and coal? And if we get rid of them, what good is the carbon tax? Carbon taxes, carbon credit, cap and trade—all of these ideas are ways to try to make money on the the limiting and regulation of the the, the uh, carbon-based economy that we have right now. And so there are people, of course, in financial interests that are lined up to make a lot of money from that, and that's why it's being pumped at the international level right now. Including by a lot of the, uh, the 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 big oil companies that supposedly are all against this, they're, they're they know what side the bread is buttered on, and they're lining up to, with their, you know, caps in hand to get ready for the the new reality as it comes into place. 
And as I, I believe I've mentioned on this show before, in the next uh, 20 years, they're looking at an extra uh, another $90 trillion of global energy infrastructure investments being made that they're hoping to steer towards. Uh, these these types of alternative energy ideas and other things that uh, are supposed to, you know, be in line with this carbon dioxide as the thermostat for the globe narrative that they're trying to sell people. So that is uh, just a, basically a large boondoggle that's being played on top of this. The real question is, I mean, what will actually replace oil, assuming that they do actually find something? And I, I really don't know what they're planning at this point, because unless it's nuclear, I just don't see anything that has even the potential for the capacity for that type of uh, that, that the energy requirements for the globe. Uh, one last question we've got. What have we got left here? About two minutes. There's uh, an article from 24hgold.com, Global Stakes for the Brexit Vote. The in-out European Union referendum will finally take place in Great Britain on June 23rd. Not so long from now, a couple more months. The outcome of the long-promised vote could have a tremendous impact, not merely on the future of British uh, Prime Minister Cameron and his coalition, but on the economic future of Great Britain and much of the world. What do you think about the Brexit vote? Is England going in or out? And uh, if they if they leave the European oh, area, European Union area, whatever the proper term is, uh, will we really see something dramatic or will it be fairly minor? Oh, I have no doubt that it, that would be a dramatic move and it would definitely affect the European Union as a whole. And I would love to believe that there is the real opportunity for Britain to actually exit the EU. And I would certainly encourage people who are so inclined in Britain to get involved in that campaign. But let's keep in mind the European Union does not play fair. Um, people might remember back when the original idea for the European Union constitution was being floated and uh, it's, it's got voted down, I think, in France and, uh, and the Netherlands before they, they abandoned that. And so then they came back with the Lisbon Treaty, which was the EU constitution in all but name. And, uh, and they, they tried passing that around, but Ireland voted it down. So they made Ireland vote again. <laughs> they didn't like that we'll vote. will show so you. Vote again. Yeah. Exactly. So do it until you do Ireland it right. Get up forward. there and vote on the blackboard and 50 times. I will vote for exactly. the European Union. Um. And it worked the second time around. So, uh, again, I'm, you know, I don't hold out hopes because they're not playing fair. And one would expect they wouldn't let Britain go easily. And uh, the most interesting story I've seen come out so far is that Obama came out trying to lecture Britain. You, you guys should stay in Europe. And yeah. there was a lot of uh, a commentary. Oh, do from, as I uh, do. From England. Do as I say. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. People saying, well, what hypocrisy coming from the U.S., which would never be involved in an organization like this. So, interesting. Hi, James. Thank you for, for joining us on the program. always appreciate your comments and insights. And uh, I keep looking for a question that you won't be able to answer, but I haven't found it yet. We're out of time, folks. I want to thank you all for listening. We'll be back tomorrow. In the meantime, the good Lord bless you, me, Melody, Frank, the producer, and James Corbett. Bye-bye.
American Voice Radio Network is heard on Galaxy 19 at 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices. Most people realize their body needs clean water to function properly. Pure is the cleanest water, also known as distilled water. Some frauds pushing fake science and ignorant people repeating their disinformation and half-truths will tell you distilled water leaches minerals from the body. What they fail to tell you is distilled water only attracts and flushes inorganic minerals from your body. These are minerals your body cannot process and can interfere with your proper body functions. Distilled water does flush these inorganic materials from your body and is an effective and natural way to cleanse your body. ABR sells a distiller that distills one gallon every three and a half hours. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com, click on the Superstore, go to the distiller, check the pricing and how to order, and watch the video explaining in detail why distilled water is pure water. Studies have shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. Prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971 when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family.
I gotta have a mind to paint a plywood sign and nail it up on a knotty pine tree. Saying I was here first, this is my piece of dirt, and your rambling don't rattle me. Good evening, all. This is the Frank Report. I'm your host, Francis Stephan. You're listening right here on American Voice Radio Network. It's about six minutes, uh, seven minutes after 8 p.m. Pacific time. It's Wednesday. It's March 16th. It's 2016. So if all that's working out where you're at, we are, in fact, live. You can call in 800-932-1980. 800-932-1980. The 800 means it's toll-free. Of course, that doesn't matter on a cell phone, does it? You get to pay, I get to pay. What a great deal. Anyway, that's one way to participate in the show. Another way is you can go to the chat room and lurk about like everybody else who's in there right now. Okay? Lurking is when you're in there, but you're not saying anything for you know whatever reason. But anyway, so it's a term of endearment. Uh, you can go there. 
by going to our website, theamericanvoice.com or americanvoiceradio.com. And either one you go to now should bring you to the new modernized mobile responsive site. Meaning it looks good on your mobile device as it does, you know, on a regular computer. It'll work the same. It'll work. Everything fits and all that good stuff. So, you know, that brings in a whole another audience, the people on mobile devices, which, gosh, too bad there's nobody using mobile devices. Uh, but anyway, so I got that done this last weekend where everything points to the right places and uh, we're on a new server and all this good stuff's going on. Uh, still have two different... Uh, servers in two different cities and all that still have that redundancy but anyway look for the chat link you'll see it over on the left hand side and uh it's easy to get in then there's yahoo uh instant messenger my screen name is avrn talk so that comes straight to me. Well, you know, after it goes through the NSA, then it comes straight to me. But, you know, pretty much straight to me. All righty. <clears throat> Let's get on to some things and stuff. Now, I am not sure. There is no uh, <laughs> there is no real uh, news about it. I don't know if, uh, you know, Donald Trump was declared the winner in Missouri, or they're recounting the votes, or whatever. I know the rules say that either any candidate can demand a recall if the uh, well, not any candidate, but any candidate that is involved in a in a loss or a victory, I suppose, that is less than 0.5 percent difference. And this was 0.2 percent difference. So Trump or Cruz could have called for a recount of the ballots. Now, I don't know if anybody has. I don't know if that's what's going on. I don't see anything anywhere saying so or not, but there it is. And, uh, you know, so that's the end of the uh, delegate uh, campaign thing. Other than uh, they're having another Republican debate. And <laughs> this next Fox debate, I believe it's a Fox debate, is uh, he's not showing up. He's not going to go. He's going to go talk to the Jews at APAC instead. And um, you know what? I have mixed feelings about that because APAC is a real bad lobbying group. Okay? It's the secular, Talmudic Jews from Israel exercising control over our politicians. Now, Trump is going to skip the debate to go make what he calls a major speech in front of them. Now, part of me really doesn't like that. Part of me, that pisses me off that Trump, you know, basically, hey, the American people, even though they're a circus and I don't much care for the moderators of any 
of these, you know, Fox, CNN, whoever does them, the moderators all seem to think that they are entitled to as much airtime and as much camera time and as much FaceTime as the candidates are, as though somehow anybody gives a damn what they have to say or they think. Because, hey, guess what? Nobody does. Nobody cares. You're nothing but a scripted actor. You're a puppet. You say what you're told to say, and we all know it. So nobody likes you, okay? Get out of the way, ask the question, and then shut up. But, see, the moderators don't do that because they're big TV stars, and they got to keep talking. As a matter of fact, they talk the same amount of time as the candidates do. And to me, that's just rotten. That's just wrong. And it isn't even a debate anyway. You know, it's more of a cafeteria food fight at some elementary school is is more what it's like than a debate. But nevertheless, the American people love these debates. I mean, <laughs> look at the ratings difference between the Democrat debates and the Republican debates. <laughs> oh, Oh, that witch Hillary should be real worried because, you see, that's how popular you are. No, it's not that everybody knows. Oh, well, everybody knows Hillary's going to win, and who cares what Bernie Sanders says anyway. Well, that's like every Republican in the country, you know, but Democrats, no, they just don't like you, Hillary. They're disgusted that you're their candidate, but what can they do? What, vote Republican? Well, you know what? People like Cruz, you know, who is nothing but a shill, okay? The guy is taking so much money. He's married to Goldman Sachs, all right? Does he get any more in bed? I mean, really, literally, literally in bed with Goldman Sachs. Sure, he calls her Heidi, but it's Goldman Sachs, okay? Because that's where she works. Oh, but she took a leave. Yeah, she took a leave so she could work on Ted's campaign. I'm sure they got her office all set aside, just like they did Eric Holder's. So, you know, Trump is going to go talk to APAC instead of do the debate. You know, last time he didn't do the debate because, hey, I'm sorry, you either get rid of Megyn Kelly or I'm not showing up. And, uh... Fox said, oh, hey, she's our gal. All right, fine, I'm not showing up. So now he's not showing up again, but it's not because of anything you know. Fox did. It's because, hey, I've already got plans to talk here. You scheduled this debate. Can't make it, sorry. Plus, really, let's be reasonable here, folks. I know a lot of you out there going, oh, it's rotten, dirty, lousy, beady-eyed Jews. And, you know, to a great extent, I understand that. To a certain extent, I agree with it. However, let's look at this from a business perspective. And whether you think Donald Trump is a good businessman or a bad businessman or a successful businessman or a loser businessman, he is a businessman. And he's looking at this as business. Hmm, let's see. I'm the presidential frontrunner for the Republican Party and... Should I go talk to... Okay, let's not even... Let's look at it from a negative. Okay, because it is a negative. Do 
I snub the American people who have already seen, I don't know, what, 1,500 debates already? Is that how many they've had this season? It sure seems like it. Uh, but I don't know, what, 10, 11? Something. They've had an enormous amount of debates. Everybody pretty much has got the message, all right? We've had a lot of debates. So, yes, there's going to be some people insulted. Oh, yes, Cruz and Kasich are going to get up there on stage, and they're going to uh, bash Trump when he's, you know, not there. And, uh, oh, what a horrible man. Is this an absentee president? Is that what he's going to do? Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, let's ask Teddy. Really? While you're out here screwing around on TV, who's doing your senator job? Huh? As a matter of fact, as you've been running all around the country trying to sucker us into believing you're some kind of outsider conservative, Who's been doing your senator job? Huh? Huh, Ted? Or, hey, Kasich, aren't you supposed to be running a state? How can you run around the country running for president? Who's doing your job while you're gone? You see, so it's disingenuous for either one of these guys to say, oh, you know, what's he going to call it in as a president? Is he going to just not show up and blah, 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 blah? And they will, because that's how they are. So, yeah, it is kind of a snub to the American people, the, the American viewer, all right? Not necessarily all the people, because tell you the truth, I don't feel snubbed at all. But I'm sure some people do. Or do you snub APAC? Hmm. Gee, what could go wrong there? Huh? Like it or not. Remember, we're not thinking about how you feel what you think, and all that good stuff, we're thinking about what is. And we're thinking business. What could go wrong from the front-runner Republican candidate snubbing APAC? I'm telling you, a lot could go wrong. Now let's look at the upside. What's the upside of Trump participating in this debate? He's already the front-runner. I mean, he can't do anything but lose, you know, ground, say stupid things that piss people off and make them think, oh, God, he's crazy. Uh, he, I, I thought I supported him, but now that he said that, whatever that might be. Okay, so he really doesn't have anything to gain. He's already winning. When you're already winning, you know, why, why should I speak? All I can do is screw it up. So really, Trump has very little to gain by going to this debate. What can he gain by making a speech for APAC? Well, he can, he, I'm not saying they will, but APAC could support him. That's a big deal. Now, Trump doesn't need the money, but he could use some endorsements. He could use some... Because, you see, while I don't care who endorses Trump, right, because everybody's entitled to their own political opinions, and just because you support somebody doesn't make any difference to me. Now, you can explain to me, well, why? Why do you support this guy? Well, because of this, that, and the other thing. Okay. All right, fine. I, I can consider that. But it still doesn't make any difference. Just because, But, you know, the American people, now this is a different group we're talking about here. 
okay, that, you know, oh, look, oh, look, it's my, it's, it's my favorite whoever. And they're, they're, hey, they're endorsing whoever. That's who I like. That's who I like because I want to be just like whoever it is I'm idolizing. Uh, oh, yeah, whatever they think, that's what I think. Whatever they wear, that's what I got to wear. Why do you think they have these models and these actors advertising clothing? Huh? Because you all want to look just like them because, whoa, wow, it's them. Them, after all. You see? You're feeling a little itchy. Is your back leg, like, you know, twitching a little bit? Because it ought to, because American advertising is nothing but one big Pavlov experiment. Ring the bell, drool the dog. Yeah, there you go. Oh, boy, this is great. That is Madison Avenue. And I don't like it, but I recognize that is the way it is. So having powerful, important endorsements can be a big help to somebody running for political office, especially as somebody as polarizing as Trump. Okay? And he's going to have to uh, alleviate some of the Jew fears because, you know, oh my gosh, he said that, you know, he supports Israel, but he's going to stay neutral in the Palestinian-Israel thing. Oh my God, he's anti-Semite. Oh, blah, 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 blah. That's what they said, right? Well, that's what everybody in the media, because that's what he said. He said, hey, I support Israel, but I am going to stay neutral in the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. You dirty, rotten, lousy, neutral. Who ever heard of such a hideous? Oh, wait a minute. That's kind of what our founding fathers uh, wanted the whole country to be like, to stay neutral, to stay out of other people's business. Kind of, uh, what did they say? Not to become entangled in foreign, oh, they had a word, not affairs, but that's good enough. In other words, to stay neutral. Kind of like, oh, wait a minute. We were neutral in World War One. Oh wait, that's until that's until Wilson and his boys put together nine eleven. Oh wait, wait a minute, not nine eleven. Pearl Harbor. No, 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 no. Wait, not Pearl Harbor. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. The Lusitania. Sorry, I forgot. You know, there's so many staged events to get Americans into war that I have trouble keeping them straight. At least I didn't mix up the Gulf of Tonkin or, hey, the bombing of the Maine. Right? Do you realize that, folks? You ever think about that? And Fort Sumter? <sighs> you know, I'm not so sure that wasn't a big setup, too. However, I mean, really, why? Why would the South do that? Okay, listen, we told you to go. You didn't go. You're bringing in food and water. You're not going to go. So, I know. Let's massacre them all. Let's kill everybody at Fort Sumter. That, uh, that'll be fine. 
I mean, hey, the federal government certainly wouldn't go to war with us over just massacring one of their forts, huh? Really? Either somebody was really stupid and blinded by rage and anger. I qualify that as being really stupid. Or the North killed all their killed their own people and blamed it on the South. For all I know, that's what I would figure they did. Because you know why? They have a history of it. But hey, Spanish American War. Oh, remember the Maine? That's why we're going to take over Cuba and the whole uh, Caribbean. Well, yeah, except the Maine wasn't attacked by Spain. It blew up and sank. Yeah. Oops. And then hey. World War One, the Lusitania, World War Two, Pearl Harbor, all setups, man. All setups. Man. I'm not going to say they were fake, because I do believe people really died. I mean, people really died at Pearl Harbor. People really died on the Lusitania. So, to that point, it wasn't fake, but it was a setup. It was scripted. It was manipulation of the public. It was advertising. The Gulf of Tonkin got us into Vietnam. Hey, 9-11 got us into the Middle East. I mean, it go, it, you seeing a pattern here? <laughs> I mean, honestly. How come every time we go to war, there's some phony baloney BS incident? Or, as Rahm Emanuel or Hillary Clinton would call it, a crisis. So anyway, so that's what's going on with Trump, and he's going to talk to APAC. So I can't blame him from a business reality uh, perspective that, yeah, it's probably the best choice. I mean, because if you've got a schedule conflict, something's got to go. What's it going to be? Is it going to be the, uh, the 9,000th Republican debate? Or is it going to be a speech in front of a powerful lobbying group? Yeah, what do you think you'd choose? Okay, let's get on to some things and stuff. 50,000 exposed to toxic levels of arsenic in drinking water. But hey, guess do you know what the officials are saying? That's not an emergency. <laughs> That's not an emergency. According to a new report, for over a decade, over 50,000 Texas residents have been exposed to toxic levels of arsenic in their drinking water in spite of the dangers of arsenic, a carcinogen, and quantities of the chemical that violate federal safety standards. Local officials have repeatedly told residents the water's safe to drink. The Environmental Integrity Project, a charitable organization that focuses on research, reporting, and media outreach, released a report Monday documenting the exceedingly high levels of arsenic and the negligence of Texas safety officials. Pursuant to the Federal Safe Drinking Water Act, public water supplies may not have levels of arsenic that exceed 10 parts per Billion. But according to EIP, Texas officials have failed to properly notify residents of health risks. According to EIP, data from the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality shows that the average average 
arsenic concentrations in 34 communities serving 51,000 people have exceeded that health-based standard for at least the last 10 years. Many at levels several times higher. Several times? The average arsenic concentrations in 65 Texas community water systems serving more than 82,000 people has exceeded that health-based standard for over the last two years. Okay, so now we're at 130, over 130,000 people. That's eh, no big deal. Eh, this is not an emergency. You do not need to use an alternative water supply. Even while the same advisory alerts residents that, quote, some people who drink water containing arsenic in excess of the MCL over many years could experience skin damage or problems with their circulatory system and may have increased risk of getting cancer. But hey, you know what? Other than cancer and, uh, you know, your circulatory system shutting down and having bad skin, uh, there's no problem here. What's the big deal, huh? Quit whining. For crying out loud, you're a Texan. Aren't you supposed to be tough? You can drink a little arsenic, can't you? Huh. Wow. Anyway, so we've got more news just like that. Well, not just like that, but similar when we come back from the break. My mama told me she didn't like that rock and roll. I said, please, mama, please. Mama, you just don't know I don't want That will keep you alive. The kids are rock and rolling from 8 to 25. I don't wanna hang up my rock and roll shoes. Because I get that feeling every time I hear those Yes, I will do my homework. Clean the yard every day. Will soon fade away No matter what they say Rock and roll is here to stay Thank you. 
your head. Too many can do neither. Messiah's Branch has a mission church in Wichita, Kansas that helps the victims of this banker's economy, the American people, your neighbors. The mission is the last hope for so many Americans. We need your help to lift up the poorest of the poor. These are men, women, and children who once had homes, now in the street. They all need what you need. First aid, beds, and ignorant people repeating their disinformation and half-truths will tell you distilled water leaches minerals from the body. What they fail to tell you is distilled water only attracts and flushes inorganic minerals from your body. These are minerals your body cannot process and can interfere with your proper body functions. Distilled water does flush these inorganic materials from your body and is an effective and natural way to cleanse your body. ABR sells a distiller that distills one gallon every three and a half hours. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com, click on the Superstore, go to the distiller, check the pricing and how to order, and watch the video explaining in detail why distilled water is pure water. Everybody's got this broken feeling 
like the mama or the dog just died. Everybody's hands are in their pockets. Everybody wants a box of chocolates and a long stem rule. Everybody knows. Everybody knows. Report. I'm your host, Francis Stephan. You're listening right here on American Voice Radio Network. It is still Wednesday, March 16, 2016. 
And it's about mm, 8.39 and a half out here on the Pacific Time Coast. That's when it is where you're at. We are, in fact, live, and that means you can call in. Really, I'll answer the phone. I'll let you on. I really will. Honest. I can't say I'll be nice, but I won't be that mean. 800-932-1980. 800-932-1980. Although, if you're too scared to call in, you can. See, I'm I'm baiting you there. Anyway, you can go to the chat room. Those people are really nice in there. They'll hardly call you any names at all, hardly ever. And uh, all you have to do is go to our website, okay? TheAmericanVoice.com or AmericanVoiceRadio.com. Go over to the left-hand side, look for the chat link, and click it. That's how easy it is. That is how easy it is. Anyhow, oh yeah, forgot about uh, Yahoo Instant Messenger. You can contact me there. And uh, AVRN Talk is my screen name. Actually, I'm I, I got a couple of people I'm talking to there. Well, not as we speak because well, <laughs> they can talk, but I can't because I cannot type and talk at the same time. Okay, let's get back to things and stuff. Where to start? Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. Not. One because I've already done this one here. Oh, look, Saved by the Bell. I already did this one here. This one was a, a, a story about how, you know, Cruz and Kasich and uh, Rubio, when Rubio was still, well, a politician, because uh, his career is pretty much over now. He should have got out before Florida. I, I kept saying that, but hey, whatever. Uh, yeah, how they, you know, when the thugs from George Soros's paycheck came, uh, you know, busting into his uh, event, causing trouble. Yeah, they blamed him. Can you imagine? That's how petty these guys are. Really. All right, let's take our caller. Go ahead, caller. Good evening, Frank. This is Bob from Washington. Bob, I've been waiting for you to call in. Otherwise known as Jay uh, from Washington. Let's just stick with Bob. I like Bob. I just thought I would. Okay, this is... Well, actually, I don't really like Bob. I like to pick on Bob. Bob's a... He's a tough guy. He can take it. I know. He's he's a tough guy. No, uh, I I was listening to the first part of your show on my mobile device uh, because I had to be somewhere. Isn't that uh, cool? (laughs) Isn't that cool how it works on a mobile device like that? It's like an AM radio. It is. But I heard you mention that Trump's going to not be at the the next debate because he's going to be speaking... To those punks at APAC. Yeah, that's the news story. And and you and you said you weren't happy about that. And now I'm not happy about that either. But I read an article on my show, I think last week, Pat Buchanan mentioned that Trump has said that he's going to remain neutral in the conflict between like Israel and the Palestinians. Yep, I, so meant, I maybe, mentioned that. Oh, you did? Okay, I, I missed that yep. because the, the, the guy but he all, up. But you know what he also said in that same... You know, like, I don't know, paragraph or sentence that when he said that about being neutral, he Mm -hmm. started it out by saying, look, I support Israel, but between the conflict of Israel and Palestine, I'm staying neutral. Well, and I, I guess I guess none of us know what he's going to say there. I don't know if he's leaked anything or if you have any knowledge, if you 
Oh, I mean, I'm sure we'll hear all about it once he does. <clears throat> he he's okay. He's doing the Trump thing. Okay, he's doing the okay. Uh, I you know I'm not going to be at the debate because I got a really hugely important, massive important speech. You know, well, like it's going to be a blockbuster. I mean, it's going to be a bombshell. It's going to be well, anything out of Trump's mouth these days is that. Well, it could be. I guess it could end up being that way, especially if he sticks true to his guns. And I guess that's what I'm, I guess that's why. Or but the way imagine sees, this. Imagine this, though, Jay. What if one of those Jews there at APAC decides they think that they can heckle him? See, that could turn real well, ugly real fast. <laughs> right, and that's gonna, he's putting himself in a kind of a. I don't think so. hostile I mean, environment. I honestly, don't. Well, yeah, but I, I was going to say, yeah, that and, and like kind of a a predicament, if you will. But I, I don't think so. Trump can't be – he hasn't let himself be bullied or pushed around by by the establishment and by the, you know, by the, the, the media. Well, no, here, and what, I mean, what, I, what, I, what I gathered from what he first said about, you know, because the, the, the media, of course, made a huge deal. Oh, my gosh, he's anti-Semite. What, because he said he supports Israel, but he's going to remain neutral about the conflict that right, with that? Right. What? That's anti-Semitic. What? So I read well, a little bit more about it. And, def- and you know, defending. What, what it kind of comes out to me is what Trump is trying to say, and and he actually did say. It's just the media ignores it. Is that look? I support Israel's right to exist, but. This thing they got going on with the Palestinians, I'm not getting involved. Right, but you know that's not good enough for people no, to, apparently to just not. say that. <laughs> no, apparently okay, not. It, that's not good enough. You have to really, and that's, I guess, the point. You want to wait and see. It'll be a big disappointment. Well, I think, I, think what's, he, I think what's required nowadays is you have to sign a pledge to kill your children for the good of Israel. Well, you're not far off. I mean, it's that's essential. I mean, because it, it's it's worse than being called a racist or a homophobe. It's like the worst being called an anti-Semite. I mean, that's that's like the worst. And well, you're and so Hitler's little brother. To... If you it, it, right, uh, you know, do that, man. Wow. Right. If, if you you know, if you disagree with the Jews in any any way, shape, matter, or form, you, you you may as well have shoved part of some of them in the ovens yourself. And you know, and, the, the and I'm not exaggerating. Thing, and you know what? The sad thing about this whole thing, Jay, is that just like the black community, the Jewish community has good, hard-working, true blue Americans in it, and they are being really painted into this corner with these complete reprobate pieces of garbage that have no business being in this country. Yeah, absolutely. They let themselves get roped in. It seems like they, you know, can't think independently either. They have to get led around you know, by the nose, just like you said, the blacks and the, and the, and the Mexicans and, and any other minority group out there, they but, just have to get uh, led around by. You know, it's not just the minorities, though. Let's look at the United States as a whole. That's me, you, the black community, the Jewish community, all of us, right? All of us that are Americans, here we are, right? What's the rest right. of the world think about us? They don't like us very much, Jay, and you know why? Because not because of anything I've done. I haven't done anything to anybody outside. I haven't done anybody to anything, you know, but, hey, they still don't like me, and they don't like you either. You probably haven't done anything to Germany either. But the thing is, our government has, and that's who they view us as, because we're sitting here letting them do it. 
And exactly. And look, no, absolutely. Al brings, he brought something up he, on his show, uh, you know, earlier. And I'm see if I can, you know, tie this in somehow, you know, about the debt and how he said something like the federal government is the biggest debtor in, in the world. And, and, I'm, and I, when I heard that, I'm like, no, 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 it's not the government that's the biggest debtor. It's the American people that are biggest debtor. The, the, the government, we, we let the government be the biggest debtor. So it's the American people. We're an extension of the government. We are the government. We are our government, right? Well, yeah, other than the only thing I would switch is to say the government is actually an extension of the American people, not the other way around. But Okay, oh, hey. but, right, okay. I, okay, but... Wag, so, yeah, wag I, I the your, dog, you know. Sort right, of I get your point. And, and, but I thought I wanted to make that distinction that, you know, we're the ones that, hey, if our government's doing something, it's only because we're letting them. And, and yeah, they're going to hate the government for it, and they should. But if they hate us, too, uh, well, then, you know, that's justified because, Frank, we're the ones that sit around and well, we sat I, I believe, around. I, I agree. I, I believe it's justified. I mean, we can hate our government, but the rest of the world, they don't know the difference and they don't care. Right, you know, right. They're just like, no, you why should jackasses over there? You know, look what you're doing over here to us and around the world, you <laughs> bunch of jerks. You know, and that's the way they look at this country, just like we look it's at Israel. A... We look at Israel right. and go, you bunch of jerks. We, well, the whole country's not a bunch of jerks. The the people running it and the people in power, yeah, they are a bunch of jerks. But, yeah. hey, the rest of the country exactly the same thing. is being drug along with them. Exactly. No, that's, yeah. There you, know, you go. And then I we mean, have subsections in every country like that, like in this country. Right. We've got the black community being rung around by their nose, painted in a horrible light by people like Jesse yep. Jackson and Al Sharpton and Louis Farrakhan, for God's sakes. And, you know, and then we got the Jews. Oh, they're being, they're being, you know, nobody likes them because, hey, look at the APAC. They, they run Washington, D.C. They, they run do. Hollywood. They, they run the banking well, system. You know, I mean... It's it's a little more insidious with them. I think there's a little bit more to that than there is just with the blacks or the Mexicans. The Jews are are a bit more insidious of a of a. I call them parasites. Well, they've been at it really a lot are. longer, and they've also got a lot. Uh, well, they almost look like a white person. Yeah, you know, so they fit yeah. in better. I mean, True. that's the okay. only thing they don't stand out as separate uh, unless they you know decide. To be set, you know, to when they say, "Hey, wait a minute!" Oh no, right, I was right. just well, like I was just like you until I want something special. Now you're well, anti-Semite if I don't get what I want. Right. That's to me. I, I, I what I always say. It's like we're all the same until we're not. You know. And yeah, till I want something, then you know. Right. Then, then hey, you you're a you're a whatever you're an anti whatever I am. That's right. It. Just exactly. You exactly. hater. You well, hater. Because if you didn't hate me, <laughs> you'd let me have everything I wanted. Isn't that what your kids tell you? I mean, you know, when, uh, they're, yeah. you know, when they're about two years old. Uh, yeah. No, you can't have that pack of cigarettes and that bottle of whiskey. I'm sure. I'm sorry, Junior. No, you're not old enough, and you're not having it. Well, well, there you go. Junior's going to have a fit you now. Go. You hate me, and I hate you. Yep. You know, <laughs> that's that. You know, but <laughs> you know, you can kind of take that out of a two-year-old. Right. Okay? right. You can go. Okay. Well, whatever. You're two years old. You'll get over it. But these people right, aren't two right. years old. But yeah, no, they act like not. that. Well, yeah, they do, and it's you know again, I'll just get back to the fact that it's us that you know we let them get away with it. We've been letting them get away with it, Frank, and you know this far better than I do. You've been doing this longer than I have. 
we're letting the government just get away with with everything, and now it's it's so out of control. It's just, it seems unfathomable well, or listen, incomprehensible. Kind of like to, this. To, Turn it around. Now, you, may, you made a point there. I've been at this a long time, and I have. But you were an Army Ranger, and I'm going to tie these two things together. So here we are, and now I haven't been letting the government do anything. I've been fighting them any way I can for as, uh, as long as I can remember. Okay. You know, it's just nobody wants to listen to me, and, and now more people are listening now than ever before. But now, here's the thing, Jay. Let me ask you something about... Well, killers, such as yourself, you know, an army ranger. I mean, let's not sugarcoat it. Uh, what are you trained at? You're trained to kill people, right? Yeah. Blow up things yeah. and kill people. I mean, that's it. It's your job. Yeah. How much, uh, how do I word this? Okay. How much more valuable are you to your community and wanted and respected and loved by your community when there's a crap storm going on where they need somebody somebody needs killed versus oh, when dear. everything's happy and friendly and nice, people don't much want a killer around. Do that. Yeah. No, I know that's a that's a good point. You know, uh, so yeah. you know, I've sat here for twenty years and nobody wants to hear anything and uh, but I just keep yakking away and keep, you know, filing lawsuits, keep doing what I do, right? <laughs> and uh you know yeah. One of these days, people are going to want to say, hey, man, hey, man. And you know what? I'll, I'll be there to tell them, just like a soldier. You know, a soldier gets all pissed off because nobody wants them around. Nobody invites them over to dinner because everybody knows you're a killer. Right. You know, you've, you've killed people before. You'll probably kill people again. It's not the kind of people we want over for dinner, no, hanging with our kids exactly. and all this stuff. Right, but, right. Oh, yeah, you're so true, yeah. Oh, my gosh, though. Hey. There's a gang in town. Hey, guess who's the first door they're going to be knocking on? The killer. Wait, where, where's that killer? Yeah, we where need our killer. We need, him? we need our right. killer now. Where's our killer at? You know, bring him over here. Let's that's feed him the, dinner. Hey, what do you say we barbecue, Bob? Bob? Bob, Bob's <laughs> right. the killer, you know. And, and, you know, so the same thing. You know, it's the same thing. But, you see, that's the whole thing. And I want to encourage the people out there that are doing stuff is that, look, uh, all right. So I think soldiers pretty much get the idea that, you know, and you really go look in the mirror and you have to kind of give them a nod and say, well, yeah, I get it. You know, you know, I am a killer. <laughs> so, yeah, I kind of get it. You know, I get why you would be apprehensive. You know, yeah, yeah. people are apprehensive well, of somebody they know. You know what? This guy freaks out. He'll kill us all. He can snap all our necks. And, you know, it's not a comfortable <laughs> feeling for people, right? You know, so, uh, no. okay, fine. You know, I get it. I get why. Same thing with you folks out there behind the plow on this whole truth movement, patriot, whatever it is now. I don't know what the, what the name of it is anymore. But right, right. Whatever it is, stick with it because... You know what? Just because when you're a soldier and they don't want you around, so you don't get to go to all the barbecues, you don't get to go to all the dinner dinner parties. You know, they don't let you coach the little league team because they're you know they don't want you teaching their kids how to become killers, right? That's what they think. Well, that's a good perspective. Uh, you know, it's like a, it's like a I look at it like it's a good time to get into the market. You know, it's like a what is it? The bear market and the, yeah. the bull market. What's the good time to get into the patriot movement? Now it might seem like a good time to get into whatever, like you said, whatever they're calling it now. Sure. Truth, liberty, patriot, whatever. Well, it is. And, because, 
you know, but the thing is, the people have been in it a while. They do get disappointed. They do get disillusioned. They do get frustrated at the lack of seeming understanding and action on other people's parts. But, you know, just like a soldier, just because you don't get invited to all the barbecues, do you stop being who you are? You throw on no, some lipstick and a dress. You throw on some lipstick and a dress and go play nice with the neighbors so you can go to all the dinner parties. I don't think I'll just speak for you because you've been doing it longer than I have. I mean, can you change? No. Could you think like you could change just all of a sudden? I mean, you've been doing what you've been doing for so long. I, I kind of look at myself that that same way. As somebody tell me, a friend tell me, you know, you're you're not, you know, you're you're not going to change. You've been. He's known me for 25 years, and he's, uh, this is how I am. And, and so, yeah, I get disgruntled sometimes, and but it's like, what, what am I going to do, start watching TV? Well, and that's, <laughs> you know? my, that's my encouragement to people out there. You know, yeah, you can have your moments where, well, you know, nobody loves everybody hates me, nobody loves me, I'm going to go in the yard and eat worms. You know, that's fine. <laughs> you know, we all get those moments, right? And. But the thing is, just keep plowing away, man, because there's going to come a time when you're going to become a very valuable person in your neighborhood. And 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 the more people you can keep talking to, you're going to have more yeah. people like you around. And that's Stick really what it, you man. want, you know? I mean, that's, yeah. you know, and it's not, okay, your other choice is to, I don't know, Start shooting heroin, uh, crawl in a bottle, uh, just become a hermit, right. live in a dark room or something, because that's your other choice. Because you can't change. Right, I was going to say quit. You can't yeah, I was going to say quit. Well, you can quit. But you can quit, but you know but what? See, you, won't, you won't be able to easily live with yourself if you do. No, no. I mean, I can only speak for myself there. I'm not a quitter. So, there's, you know, I, I'm not going to quit. I mean, what, quit? What's that? That's what sissies do. I'm, I'm not going to quit. So... I just keep well, trudging that's along. that's what losers do. Like you have. That's yeah. what losers Just like Al. I mean, look how long Al's been doing this. Yeah, longer than he me. he suffered some really... I mean, and he suffered some real consequences of of, of his lifestyle. Okay? And mm-hmm. he just keeps going along. And uh, I find what his commentary and, and his what he does uh, valuable. That's He's valuable also had some very, very good successes. You know, yeah, he really yeah. has. And yeah. and yeah, they didn't change the country. And, you know, but that is unrealistic to think that it would. Any one of us, you know, would. And, you know, I think most of us getting into these things have a somewhat unrealistic expectation of what we're going to accomplish when we first start. <laughs> and that, you know, that goes for business. That goes for a lot of things. I mean, people just have unrealistic expectations. Well, I'm going to start my own business and become a millionaire. <laughs> Yeah, okay, uh, be nice to first pay the electric bill, wouldn't it? Right. You know, well, I still think that, uh, I still feel like, I don't know how to say this, that I can change the country. I mean, I, I've been, I've felt that way for 25, 30 years, and I still feel that way every day, that, man, if I can just say this one thing or clue people into this one thing, that that it can change. I mean, uh-huh. I don't know how else to really feel. Uh, well, and it's true. That's what we need to do. Otherwise, why are we doing it? Why are you doing it? Well, I want things to change. Listen, you know, and, I, and I'll, I, I've said this in different ways many times, but the thing is, 
the problem is we look at it like, okay, that one thing I could say, that one thing I could do, that's doing that me, 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 right. me, 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 my, 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 and yeah, okay, I, fine, that could happen. Maybe you get discovered, they throw you on some big network, and the whole world sees you in that, but that is unlikely. What's more likely but is... But that's not that, my motive, though. I, mean, I know, that, 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 but what's you know, more likely is that you're just going, doing it like, hey, this, like you go to work every day. You know, people go to work, hey, every day. <laughs> when you get behind the wheel of that truck, do you figure you're changing the world every day? Uh, no. But you are. You oh, know well, why? You're bringing people food, okay? You're well, bringing people sure. the things they need. So you're changing somebody's life because if you yeah, weren't doing what you're doing, they'd be uh, kind of, well, where they're going to be here pretty soon. But, I mean, the thing is, <laughs> yeah. you, you get on the radio, you talk, you figure, I don't even know if anybody's listening. I don't even know what's up. Ah, why do I even bother? Well, the thing is, you don't know who's listening. And it might not be you. You might say that one thing that clicks with that one person who then he gets on the big TV or somewhere else, or he makes a difference. He uh, makes a change. He does the thing. Or he talks to somebody who does. Okay. You know, you never know. Uh, that this is true, and I'd be just, I'd be just, that, that that's fine with me. That would whatever works. Hey, I don't I care can. how we win as long as we win. Exactly. <laughs> you know? Amen. Amen. Thing. Jay, thanks for calling, in, or Bob, tell Bob I said hi. Anyway, I would do that. Thanks for taking my call. All right, bro. thanks, Bye. Jay. All right, Jay, don't forget to listen to Jay tomorrow. He's on. Uh, he was on today. If you missed it, check out the archives in a. Uh, couple hours. Everything will be updated by then. Jay will be on for an hour tomorrow again. I will also. Thanks for listening. Heard it through the grapevine My new neighbor don't like my big red barn A 47 Ford bullet holes in the door broke down motor in the front yard <laughs> I gotta have a mind to paint a plywood sign and nail it up on a knotty pine tree Saying I was here first This is my piece of dirt and your Radio Network is heard on Galaxy 19 at 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices. Commercial redemption or accepted for value, the Commerce Game Exposed is the book that will help you understand this process. The fact is, there is no lawful money in circulation. The explanation and details as to how this happened are enlightening, and the instructions concerning what one can do with this information are detailed and easy to understand. Utilizing this process is not for everyone, but learning how lawful money has been turned into commercial debt instruments should be of concern to everyone. The Commerce Game Exposed book is a good tool to learn the commercial nature of the new world order. To order the Commerce Game Exposed, go to www.com 
TheAmericanVoice.com or call 541-826-9050. That's 541-826-9050. Time is money and knowledge is power. That's why you need the Basic Research Library CD from the American Voice Now. This CD contains the Federalist Papers, which are the definitive writings illustrating the intent of the Constitution, and the Anti-Federalist Papers, which read like a crystal ball to everything gone wrong concerning the present-day Constitution. This CD also contains Bovier's Law Dictionary and the Uniform Commercial Code, plus the inaugural speeches of the U.S. Presidents, the U.N. Charter, NAFTA, Hitler's Mein Kampf, the full Communist Manifesto, the Patriot Act 1 and 2, the model anti-bioterrorism law, the Homeland Security Bill, the FBI's Project Medigo, and too much more to mention here. The CD contains over a thousand files. To order your CD, go to www.theamericanvoice.com or call us at 541-826-9050. That's 541-826-9050 for ordering information. between the makers of big box office American war movies and the Pentagon. To be a superpower, there's a basic belief that you must glorify war in order to get the public to accept the fact that you're going to send their sons and daughters to die. We are at war. The Passionate Eye presents Operation Hollywood. Hello, I'm Mikael Jean. Welcome to The Passionate Eye. In the 1980s Hollywood movie Top Gun, Tom Cruise plays a fighter pilot who feels the need, the need for speed. The film made big money for Hollywood, but for the U.S. military that backed the film and assisted in its production, there was an even bigger victory. Top Gun became a turning point in public opinion about the might of the U.S. military and its ability to win wars, and it became a powerful recruiting tool. But it was not the first time that Hollywood and the Pentagon have worked together. Tonight's film, Operation Hollywood, traces this relationship and the impact it has had on popular culture and America's view of war. I want you to remember that no bastard ever won war by dying for his country. He won it by making the other poor dumb bastard die for his country. And then, all this stuff you heard about America not wanting to fight, wanting to stay out of the war, is a lot of horse dung. Americans traditionally love to fight. All real Americans love the sting of battle. When you were kids, you all admired the champion marble shooter, the fastest runner, big league ball players, the toughest boxers. Americans love a winner and will not tolerate a loser. Americans play to win all the time. 
And I wouldn't give a hoot in hell for a man who lost and laughed. That's why Americans have never lost and will never lose a war. Because the very thought of losing is hateful to America. between the producers, internal memos uh, written by the military. And I love documents, and this is a book and a story that really can only be told with the documents. So I just became obsessed with the documents, and the documents are really startling. This is a TV show from the 1950s, a very popular TV show in America called Lassie, about a little boy and his dog. shows that had to do with the military, and the military had all kinds of uh, suggested changes in the stories. There was an episode called Timmy versus the Martians. The little boy thinks he's a contacted Martian, and there was a plane crash. In the original story, the Army came out and did a test and picked up all the pieces of the crashed airplane, and they took it to the wind tunnel and tested it, and they determined that the reason Lassie howled was because it heard a, she heard a, a high-pitched vibration in the wing that was a malfunction in the design of the airplane. And then Lassie had now saved the day because of Lassie howling. They knew what the problem was, and now they could fix all the airplanes so this wouldn't happen again. But when they asked the military for assistance, all they wanted was some some standard footage of a, of a Cessna airplane, reconnaissance military aircraft. They said, no, we won't help you unless you change the script to make it so that the airplane was not faulty. There's no problem with the aircraft. So this is, these are their, their notes right here. These are the military notes to the producers of Lassie. We have also reviewed the Timmy versus the Martians. We have reviewed the script and interposed no objections, except that we strongly recommend that you change the circumstances of the airplane crash. They don't want children to get the idea that the military makes faulty equipment because children of those are the main targets of the recruiting efforts because they make children like the army, like the military, like everything about the military. And so when they grow up, they'll want to join the military. Over and over, the documents are full of statements where they are targeting children to be future recruits. And the children and the people who see these films don't know 
that this is an advertisement for the military. The military generally are, allow themselves to be involved with, uh, with Hollywood um, because they're already spending tens of millions of dollars every year on making promotional commercials to try and um, get recruits. On the other hand, we in Hollywood just want to, you know, make a bigger and better movie, um, giving the audience more bang for their buck. Um, so it's not hard to see what, what we're trying to get out of it. The vast majority of people around the world have never lived through war. While some have witnessed its horrors, few have actually participated in combat. Most of our ideas about war come from watching movies. Above all, American movies. Hollywood has never stopped filming visions of war in all its possible forms, scales and fronts. Past wars, present wars, and future wars. a handful of films that went through the Pentagon approval process. This is Behind Enemy Lines, Full Cooperation, G.I. Jane, No Cooperation, Full Metal Jacket, which showed uh, soldiers killing Marines, killing other Marines, No Cooperation, 13 Days, No Cooperation, Top Gun, great uh, film for the Navy, Full Cooperation, Platoon, No Cooperation, the military hated that movie. Three Kings, of course, showing uh, soldiers stealing gold from the Iraqis. No cooperation. Patton, of course, they love this picture. Full cooperation. Pearl Harbor, again, full cooperation. How long is America going to pretend the world is not at war? From Berlin, Rome, and Tokyo, we have been described as a nation of weaklings and playboys who hire British or Russian or Chinese soldiers to do our fighting for us. between Hollywood and the military is not the censorship that goes into the into the, the films, but the self-censorship. When you know that you're going to need the military's assistance, and you know that they're going to be looking at your script, you write it to make them happy right from the beginning. I mean, it is so terrible that you don't really have to know much history to recognize it's absurd. I mean, some people who don't know anything will think it's history, and this is part of the problem, because if, if it was called Tennessee, which was the working title, 
then it's a fictional story. It's a love story. And Michael Bay said he was making a love story as long as Pearl Harbor wasn't too far in the background because he loved to blow up ships. But if you're going to call Pearl Harbor, then there's a presumption that this is about Pearl Harbor. In the late 1920s, the American War Department created an office to act as a bridge between the motion picture industry and the armed forces. that Pearl Harbor was going to be essentially uh, an action picture with an element of romance. It was not going to be an attempt to replicate history as a docudrama. So we understood that. We did not enter into our relationship on Pearl Harbor with any illusions that this was going to turn out to be a kind of man for all seasons. It was not advertised to be that way. The filmmakers didn't pretend that it was going to be that way. So we knew that to some extent, history was going to be the sacrificial victim in the service of drama and action. But what we did believe, and I think that was borne out quite considerably, was that the film would awaken or reawaken interest in the period and in the survivors who were dying off by the hundreds of thousands. And we were quite gratified, in fact, that up to the release of the picture and long after the release of the picture, an enormous amount of attention. In fact, more attention paid on Pearl Harbor, the survivors, the combatants, than during the 50th anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor by a substantial margin. From the earliest days of motion pictures, the American armed forces understood the importance of encouraging the production of films about war and combat. In helping to make wings, the first major cooperation between Hollywood and the Pentagon, the military went well beyond its role as technical advisor and became directly involved in the logistics of the production. Between the First and Second World Wars, American war movements celebrated the bravery of its soldiers and gave the armed forces an aura of invincibility. Beginning in 1941, Hollywood joined the war. By 1943, over 26,000 members of the film industry were serving under the American flag. Never before had Hollywood and the military been so close. Stars traveled to distant fronts to raise troop morale. All sectors of the industry, from artists to technicians, were called to lend a hand. The Army enlisted several Hollywood veterans to film the war. John Ford followed the events in the Pacific. William Wyler and John Sturgis, the aerial battles in Europe. And George Stevens, the D-Day landing. Among these films of undeniable courage and generosity, one in particular stands out as an unforgettable statement about the reality of war. And yet for over 30 years, it was banned in America. The guns are quiet now. The papers of peace have been signed. And the oceans of the earth are filled with ships coming home. In faraway places, men dreamed of this moment. But for some men, the moment is very different from the dream. Here 
garbage. The final result of all that metal and fire can do to violate mortal flesh. Somewhere the badges of their pain, the crutches, the bandages, the splints. Others show no outward signs, yet they too are wounded. listen to the stories of the men who tell them as best they can. The names and places are different. The circumstances are different. But through all the stories runs one thread. Death and the fear of death. Hollywood continued to celebrate the military feats and traditional heroism of American soldiers during World War II. The perfect example of a just war. The Longest Day is one of the most important films to come from this period. It represents a high point in the relationship between Hollywood and the Pentagon. Never again would they achieve the same level of mutual cooperation. But these images shot by George Stevens at the liberation of the Nazi concentration camps remain a shocking counterpoint to Hollywood's heroic visions of war. that they like war uh, and, and therefore violence. They're peace-loving people. But the U.S. was created out of violence in the American Revolution. They, it was preserved in the Civil War. Its expansion came through violence. And then in World War I and World War II, it made the world safe for democracy using violence for good means. And, and my argument is that Vietnam became so traumatic, not only because we lost, but it was revealed that we really loved violence, and that's one of the reasons we got into the war. 
you know, we can win. We've always been able to win a little bit of violence, and we've won, and it didn't work. And so it was more traumatic than just that we lost. Why? Most young Americans, born into a land exultant with hope and with golden promise, toil and suffer and sometimes die in such a remote and distant place. The answer, like the war itself, is not an easy one. But it echoes clearly from the painful lessons of half a century. Three times in my lifetime, in two world wars and in Korea, Americans have gone to far lands to fight for freedom. We have learned at a terrible and a brutal cost that retreat does not bring safety and weakness does not bring peace. And it is this lesson that has brought us to Vietnam. I think Americans thought Vietnam would be like World War II. Uh, I'm not sure the movies made that great a contribution to it. I think that may be an exaggeration. I, I believe that with Vietnam what happened is that our leaders lied to us. And, and when you have leaders who lie to you, and, and they lied to themselves about Vietnam, then the public is going to go along with it because there's a natural trust of the leadership until the leadership proves untrustworthy. Eventually, Lyndon Johnson lost the trust of the country. Uh, there's indications that that may happen to George Bush. Uh, you cannot go to war lying about why you're going to war. In this country, there is still a view that the Vietnam War could have been won. The people currently in power in Washington, the President of the United States, his cabinet, Cheney, all these people, believe that that war could have been won. They believe that it was okay to lie about the people in order to get that war to be won. That attitude, that view is what's being sold in Hollywood and elsewhere now in order to get movies that are favorable to the United States and to sell the idea that it's okay for young men to go and women to go off and die in war, that that's acceptable. To be a superpower, there's a basic belief that you must glorify war in order to get the public to accept the fact that you're going to send their sons and daughters to die. That is a very cynical way to run a government. And in the end, it will bite you. Because if there's no serious effort to explain to the public why you're going to war, or if you lie to the public, it will catch up with you.
As America sinks into the quagmire of Vietnam, the movie industry begins to lose interest in representing war on screen. After such films as Patton, MASH, Catch-22, and Tora Tora Tora, Hollywood brings the production of war films to a halt. America's defeat in Vietnam leaves the country traumatized and unwilling to address the subject of war for some time. With one exception, the Green Beret. project that John Wayne had wanted to make and he got, he sent letters which I have to Lyndon Johnson asking him to help uh, get the military to assist, which Johnson did. They rolled out the red carpet, they gave everything to the filmmakers for free. But after that, the problem was that the filmmakers did not come into the Pentagon requesting help until after the war was over because, again, Hollywood's interested in making money, the war had become controversial. They didn't know when it was going to end. They didn't want films laying around that showed a war that was over. So the issue wasn't how Vietnam changed the relationship during the war. It was what happened afterwards. And what happens afterwards is that the media has savaged the military, particularly the Army and the Marines for their atrocities, etc. And so when the scripts come in, the scripts that do come in, reflect the filmmakers' perceptions of the war. Military argues are not in any way correct, and therefore there is no way we're going to cooperate. of war is innocence. The first real movie about the war in Vietnam is Platoon. Platoon became a sociological phenomenon. Now, whether it was just that the nation was ready for a healing between its Vietnam veterans and the society that essentially denigrated them and essentially neglected them when we came home, or whether it was just such a terrific film that it brought people out of their reserve. It melted the ice. Uh, I'm not sure, and that's not important. What is important was that what we brought to the screen in Platoon, served to essentially thaw the freeze that was on between America's Vietnam veterans, their families who knew nothing about the experience in Vietnam, and even those who were against the war in America. The 
film that stands as the most extraordinary testimony of the military experience in Vietnam, as well as one of the greatest war films of all time, is undoubtedly the work of Francis Ford Coppola. Inspired by Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, Apocalypse Now tells the story of the voyage of an American officer up the Mekong on a mission to execute a colonel who has spiraled out of control. I ain't risking no more lives. I'm in command here, goddammit. You do what I say. During his voyage, Captain Willard witnesses the destruction of Vietnamese society while the American army sinks collectively into madness, absurdity, and horror. Apocalypse Now transforms the Vietnam War into America's collective experience of evil in the name of the great fight against communism. Watch it over here, Chief! Here's a film that works on so many different levels um, as a, for the time, complete reassessment of America's involvement in Vietnam um, and the, the, the raison d'etre and the ways in which that war was fought. Um, it's an allegory. Um, it's uh, it's 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 very much a personal film. Um, it's um, it's a film that uh, is realistic in its presentation of the futility of war. Um, it's a film in which we find ourselves being lost um, in the story, and yet constantly reminded of. Uh, things that we should always be reminded of, and that is that you know, war is hell. It's madness. Uh, we're better to avoid it under any circumstances. Um, it's the ultimate war movie. If you're going to categorize pictures that we didn't work on, I would create two categories. Category one is the picture that has the fundamental show-stopping premise. Apocalypse Now. An officer is sent out to, to assassinate another officer. Um, Crimson Tide, an armed mutiny aboard a nuclear submarine. Once you have a fundamental showstopper, there's really little point in pointing out that the ribbons are wrong or the haircuts are not quite right. Any film that's a good film, I think, will, 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 will show that war is not the answer. Any film that the military assists always says that war is the answer. And every film that the military assists is worse than any film that they don't assist. You could, if you had a list of all the films that the military refused to assist and compared those to the films that they did assist, it's like night and day. It's just the films are so much better when the military is not involved because you don't have this censor telling you what to write. You have artists presenting their, 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 their image, not the military's image. After Vietnam, America enters a new era. The Pentagon invests in technological research, convinced that the safety of its borders and its capacity to intervene depend on technological superiority. After their divorce, Hollywood starts to offer the Pentagon stories about the technological image it's looking to promote. A film that brings them together once again is fittingly an enormous commercial success. 
picture because it signified the rehabilitation of the military as acceptable subject matter in a positive context. It showed uh, to me and to a great many other people that you could make a film that portrayed the military, the U.S. military, in a positive way and make money and not become a pariah in Hollywood. I'm not saying it was the first picture to do that, but I'm saying it was the most important picture to, to that symbolized that change in public opinion. After 10 years of self-doubt, America can make a fresh start and begin to imagine a future that may involve military interventions beyond its borders. Gulf War breaks out three years later, the American public, with images of Top Gun fresh in mind, has no reason to doubt its victory. It was a highly sophisticated, highly technological war. Having learned its lesson from Vietnam, the American army took every precaution to control the images which reached the public. No more bodies would be seen. No more direct human suffering. As in a video game, the images of contemporary warfare became clean. representation of war if America dominates its adversaries in every way. Such a demonstration of superior strength makes dramatic tension hard to sustain. Perhaps that explains why Hollywood made so few films about the Gulf War. In the 90s, a new cycle of films imagines all the ways the enemy might sneak through gaps in technology in order to take advantage of the weaknesses of the American defense system. These films anticipate a new era in which war becomes asymmetrical. About 10 years ago, it just seemed so obvious that the next big conflict was going to be a conflict uh, between uh, non-aligned uh, soldiers and the enemy of so many people in their minds, America. Um, so it's no accident that terrorism uh, was already uh, the front page headlines in the movies long before it became front page headlines in the New York Times. Agent Hubbard, FBI. Now what I propose is that you let these people go and I'll take their place. I'm going to take your silence to mean that you're considering my offer. Oh. Oh, God. London, Belfast, Beirut. We're not the first city to have to deal with terrorism. This is New York City. We can take it.
It's interesting in that if you imagine a melodrama, one needs to have an antagonist, and that antagonist has taken many faces over time. It, it didn't take um, a huge act of imagination to be aware of what was happening in Europe you know, with uh, uh, that kind of radical uh, fundamentalism and to see that there were so many places that were already dealing with the issues that I was addressing. So I wasn't um, making it up out of whole cloth, and, and it, could, it was easy to, to point to that. But the sensitivities of the Arab American community were something that was new and something that the film had to reckon with. Today, with the invocation of the War Powers Act by the president, I am declaring a state of martial law in this city. We intend to seal off this borough, and we intend to squeeze it. Idea what you're starting here? Wrong. What if what they really want is for us to herd children in the stadiums like we're doing, and put soldiers on the street and have Americans looking over their shoulders, bend the law, shred the Constitution just a little bit? We do that, and everything that we have bled and fought and died for is over. Don't you ever again question my command, is that clear? I'm not under your command, John. Take a look around, tell me if you really think that's true. I've aspired to try to talk about violence and its consequences. I've tried to talk about the fact that history is made up of people, that there are winners and losers, that there is a price to be paid, and that nothing happens absent its resonance and its consequences. Those films that I have objected to personally or politically are those that um, uh, seem to objectify uh, its participants and, and, and exploit the violence and exploit war um, to suggest that it exists without political context, without human consequence. Not surprisingly, the Pentagon refused to cooperate on Edward Zwick's film, The Siege. Any aspect of the script that deals with military ethics, the behavior of soldiers and officers in times of peace and war, is the object of particular scrutiny by the liaison officers who look at the scripts proposed by the studios. There are many subjects and themes that draw their attention and the different possible reasons for denying cooperation constantly evolve. Often, um, the special assistant to the Secretary of Defense for Entertainment Media will receive a script concurrently with my office. I'll do a sort of peripheral read um, where I, I just kind of get the main points and, and see where, where does it have the Army? That's the first thing I look for, is the first specific Army or military uh, mention. Um, and I'll sort of make notes, okay, we're here. The second time I'll go through and read it with a bit more uh, critical eye. Um, how would that soldier really behave in that situation? Um, what sort of language is the soldier using? How is the soldier uh, viewed by the civilians in the picture. What what is the mood of of the of the piece? And I and I go by it step by step until I can get through it, and it'll it'll be a script uh, similar to this one uh, that's full of notes. First of all, when we look at scripts, 
you know, are we, are we conducting damage control? And the answer is absolutely. It's, it's, it's not my role here to vilify the armed forces because I'm a believer of the armed forces. I wouldn't be in this job if I didn't. And my colleagues feel the same way. Those who are in the military obviously are adherents. Otherwise, they would vote with their feet and quit. So we are all very much of the opinion that the military is an institution for the betterment of the United States. So any picture that's contrary to that fundamental premise is going to be a problem for us. I just wonder how many of the 600 Americans that have been killed in Iraq joined the military because they saw some movie when they were a kid that they'd say, oh, I want to join the military. I saw this movie and it looks, looks great. How many of the dead 600 Americans joined the military because of some movie that they saw not knowing that the military was the ones that were behind the scenes manipulating the, the content of the script to make the military look better than it really was. Once they got to Iraq, it was too late. You know, it wasn't all so glamorous over there. When you use the military for propaganda, and the American public sees it all the time, the sensitivity to what's real and what's not real is lost. And because our movies are shipped around the world and everybody sees them around the world, that sensitivity may be going elsewhere. And what happens when that takes place is that when a life is taken, you care a little less. When you lose somebody, you care a little, oh, that's war. You know, we get this sort of very tough attitude. And I'm afraid that's what the movies are doing. The Passionate Eye now continues with Operation Hollywood. A look at the cozy relationship between the makers of big box office war movies and the Pentagon. This is the Wind Talker script, the original script, and this is um, page 51 is the character of the dentist. And the description says, bent over a dead Japanese soldier doing what he does, relieving the dead of the gold in their mouth. And then the dialogue for the dentist is, come to Papa. The dentist twists his bayonet, struggles to get the gold nugget out of the corpse's teeth, sees Helmstead and the rest of the second assault coming to the slope. Well, this was a big problem for the Pentagon. They didn't want anything like this in the movie. This is a, 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 an internal memo from uh, the Marine Corps Film Office, Captain Matt Morgan, to Phil Strube, saying, page 51, the dentist digs gold from the jaws of corpses. This has to go. The activity is unmarine. And Phil Strube, his boss at the Pentagon, wrote back, stealing gold teeth. Yep, has to go. The dentist character displays distinctly unmarine behavior. He is, in fact, committing an atrocity. Well, they don't want that shown in a film that they're cooperating with. So the producers agreed that they would take it up. As we see from the film, the real actual footage, Marines really did this during World War II. There is actual footage of a Marine with a pair of pliers pulling uh, uh, the gold teeth out of dead Japanese soldiers' mouth. This is the real face of war, not the idealized, heroic uh, version that the Pentagon wants to uh, project. My objection is not to filmmakers altering history. Filmmakers, art is manipulable. And filmmakers can say whatever they want. They can say something is absolutely false. But when the military starts dictating the content of art and saying what, uh, what history is and their idea of history, well, we know that's completely false. And one of the great examples is what they tried to do the film 13 Days. 
the filmmakers are trying to stick very close to real history. They had the actual Kennedy. Before Nixon was taping in the White House, Kennedy was taping in the White House. And we can actually hear at the John F. Kennedy Library website, you can listen to the actual tape recordings that Kennedy was having during the Cuban Missile Crisis. The other option. That was not good enough for the military. They did not want a real picture of what the military was advising, which would have taken us down the path of World War III. They wanted a much more sanitized version, and they would not assist Kevin Costner and Peter Allman and the producers of 13 Days because it showed too much of the real history, the true facts of what happened. But if launched, those missiles from Cuba would kill a lot of Americans. The very presence of those missiles gives the Soviets first strike capability. Those missiles make a nuclear exchange more likely. And that is why I'm being such a pain in the ass about destroying them and destroying them immediately. Hell, even Mac agrees. And, sir, given your own statements about Cuba, I think a, a blockade or a bunch of political talk be considered by a lot of our friends and neutrals as a pretty weak response. I suspect that many of our own citizens might feel the same way. You're in a pretty bad fix, Mr. President. What did you say? You're in a pretty bad fix. Well, maybe you haven't noticed you're in it with me. Now, General, what are the uh, what are the Soviets going to do when we attack? Nothing. 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 Because the only alternative open to them is one they can't choose. You know, they're they're not just missiles we're going to be destroying, General. If we kill Soviet soldiers, they're going to respond. I mean, how would we respond? If they killed ours, no, they're going to do something, General. I can promise you that. Those goddamn Kennedys are going to destroy this country if we don't do something about this. When we got the script, we found that it was just impossible. It was so unrealistic. And we sort of did this, uh, you know, my historian is smarter than your historian. And, or, and we kind of went back and forth, and they insisted that things had happened that uh, it, that my historian said did not happen, and particularly over some of the portrayals of McNamara and his relationship with the, in fact, the, the whole White House versus the military. I mean, we felt that the overall, the, the purpose of the military in the 13 days was to serve as a thuggish, malign presence against which the Kennedys could glow in contrast. This is a, a letter from Phil Strube to the producers of 13 Days from July 1998, where they uh, told them that they're not going to give them assistance for this film. They're saying that uh, they won't help them because both General LeMay and General Taylor are depicted in a negative and inauthentic way as unintelligent and bellicose. But in fact, that's exactly what they were. The, the, the two generals were very belligerent. They wanted to go to war. They wanted to attack Cuba. The, the record is clear on that because they have tapes showing it. The United States established the First Amendment of the Constitution as one of the keys to the American system of democracy.
It's important to note that when the framers created our Bill of Rights, the very first thing they guaranteed was freedom of speech and freedom of the press in the First Amendment. The United States protects speech to a level that I think is unprecedented around the world, that we have shortcomings. But one thing that we can point to with pride is the First Amendment. And the courts have historically always been highly protective of the First Amendment. The problem is one of method, in that the military wants to shape the message, but they know that they can't do it directly. They can't use a stick. If they go after a filmmaker who puts together a negative film, the courts will immediately shut them down. So instead of using a stick, they dangle a carrot. And they say that if you work with us, if you change your film, we'll save you millions of dollars. We'll give you access to aircraft carriers, film footage, U.S. personnel. We'll even set off ordnance so it looks like a real war instead of those computer-generated things. The Pentagon is like a giant white truck that, that public relations issued over there. It just moves through the water, looking at targets of opportunity and going snap, snap, snap. And that's not going to change. Congress is interested. They want to look patriotic and they want to get reelected. So they're not going to stop it. And the, and the commercial media, which, by the way, due to the vertical integration of the media, the fact that these media companies that now own the movie studios, now own the TV networks and the book publishers, are looking much less critically at all these issues because they can profit by this. So there is no large opposition to what they are doing. And therefore, I think it may get worse. And the only thing I can tell the viewers, the people who are the end users of these products is, when you see these kinds of films, understand, you're looking at government propaganda. As the American will in favor of our involvement in these pictures, I have no way of knowing because there's never been any surveys. But I can tell you one thing, their elected officials are certainly not opposed to it because it's nothing that we keep quiet or secret. We don't advertise it. We don't choose to, to try to be prominent to gain attention for ourselves. The public affairs world wants to stay behind the camera, not in front of it. But we're, there's certainly nothing that we're hesitant about. We're not ashamed of their relationship, nor have we ever uh, heard any complaints or any requests to modify it from the elected officials of the American public. So I can only say that Though we may get an occasional letter saying, why did you work on this picture? Why did you work on that TV show? Most of those we didn't. They just think we did. Americans have no bloody idea who Phil Strub is. And yet he has done tremendous work in shaping popular culture. They wouldn't like it. I mean, if you, if you told them who Phil Strub was, they wouldn't like it. They wouldn't like what he does or what he represents. But that's the point. Nobody tells them. I believe all we swear. To support and defend the Constitution of the United States. all enemies. I was once told by a commanding officer, it's not a question of if we go to combat. It's a question of when. You have to ask yourself, will you be prepared? 
Since no films have come out of Hollywood about Iraq or Afghanistan, the military has decided to take the initiative. After 9-11, their approach to their image has radically changed. The result is this new type of short documentary, made to look like Hollywood movies and intended to be shown in theaters like movie tone newsreels of the past. But in this case, there is no screenwriter or director, not even a journalist, no more intermediaries. It's the soldiers themselves that do the filming, with a camera in one hand and a rifle in the other. Anybody can take a video camera and point it, but to go out and also to be under fire, as you've seen from the films, you know, that's not Hollywood, that's real. Yeah, I mean, these guys were going in front of live rounds, missiles, tanks, and there's no games and there's no retakes and there's no reshoots. Uh, they had to get it and their mission was to get the shots in the best, with the best visual content of the background to the foreground to whatever that they could possibly get. You know, propaganda is creating it for you to do something. This isn't. This is telling you something that happened. I'm not asking you to do anything whenever you watch this. It's documenting what happened. The goal is very simple for every person in America to see it. The message, there's people overseas protecting your freedom of speech. That's it. Enduring Freedom was that it was a military-produced documentary, so uh, the notion of some kind of uh, objective viewpoint for documentaries would seem to be beside the point of that kind of production. They don't want an objective viewpoint. They want the military's viewpoint of it. The Pentagon immediately understood the technological advances provided by computer-generated imagery. War began to invade games. Well, what's really interesting to me about specifically this game, and I became kind of addicted to this game in 2002 when it came out. Uh, first of all, it was released while the U.S. was preparing to go to war with Iraq, uh, our second time. And what's interesting about that to me is that, of course, there's a great deal uh, in contemporary wars of control of information from battlefields and stuff uh, to the media by, by, by the U.S. And uh, this, this kind of interest in seeing, getting behind the front lines, seeing what things look like virtually in these games, I think speaks to a great thirst or, or desire for that knowledge that is not being, uh, not being satisfied by the media. Um, so these games play to that desire, the desire for that forbidden knowledge of what, uh, what the battlefields look like and what goes on. And of course, we're not getting real knowledge, we're getting this kind of, uh, you know, uh, entertainment version of this knowledge that um, may include real data and ballistics and what a bridge looks like, but the idea that this is somehow uh, anywhere near what real war would be like is a, you know, kind of absurd, but it speaks to that desire. Okay, so this is the production trailer for America's Army. It's the kind of thing that would have been shown at gaming conventions to announce the product uh, and then made available online to 
uh, fan websites uh, for gamers. The, the Army has been using simulated training, meaning, you know, obviously training based on electronic devices and so forth for, for many, many decades. Um, but it wasn't until uh, the late 80s and 90s that they really became involved in gaming, uh, training that was based off of commercial games. And this here is the uh, trailer for the game itself. As you can see, it looks very much like an, uh, a movie trailer, but also like an army recruitment ad you would see on television. Uh, it mixes in documentary footage with images, uh, footage from the game itself, with restaged video footage, uh, and it's, it's created in such a way that it's difficult to tell where one thing ends and another thing begins. If you think about how, what is the military in a military video game, uh, well, number one, it's, uh, it's access to cool stuff. It's access to cool technology. This is a big part of how the Army is promoting itself in its recruitment ads, is that it's not that join the Army, you'll get to sit in your ass in the desert and eventually get blown up. It's join the Army, you'll have access to the coolest technology you've ever seen. Because of the influence of video games, and because since, say, the Gulf War, the idea of saying war is not a video game or war is not like a video game has become a, a cliché. I'd imagine that directors who would attempt to go beyond video games in some way, like uh, think about the, the film Black Hawk Down or Saving Private Ryan. Definitely on the part of those directors, there was a, there's an attempt to convey the, the reality of war at a level at which video games may, in some sense, make it unreal. Black Hawk Down, a magnificently directed and produced film, was a part of the problem, not the solution. Yes, it showed the results of warfare, bodies being torn apart by explosives, but in its treatment of the enemy, a fanatical, uh, brainless, um, ragtag mob who had little or no humanity um, and were stupid to boot, um, it was a part of the old uh, approach to war movies and the pre-9-11 way of thinking. There could be nothing more poetic, nothing more symbolic than the U.S. military supporting an anti-war film. And that's the great loss. You know, the, these offices could in fact be the finest moment for our system to show that the U.S. military is there to protect viewpoints all viewpoints, even those that don't favor it. But instead, it has yielded to this great temptation. You know, Oscar Wilde once said that the only way to be rid of temptation is to yield to it. And that really sums up the military liaison offices. They have yielded to every temptation, great and small, to manage the image that appears on the big screen. Still to come in our new season.
The fruits are grown in chaos, distrust, and economic depression. A weary populace can seek peace only from the solutions they offer. They have worked until suicide has become so common that it generally calls forth no legitimate investigation. They have used the courts, the judges, the medical profession, and even the Constitution to further their ends. America now has over one million of its citizens in prison for political crimes. So who are they? And how long have they been at this? Psychopolitical Warfare is a 70-page color cover booklet that describes the strategy and tactics behind psychopolitics. Psychopolitics is only $10 from The American Voice. Go to www.theamericanvoice.com or call 541-826-9050. That's 541-826-9050 for ordering information.
April, troops and tanks of the Israeli army attacked Ramallah and other towns in occupied Palestine. This was reported as an incursion to stop terrorism. In fact, it was also an attack on civilian life, on schools, offices, clinics, theatres, radio stations. This systematic vandalism is typical of one of the longest military occupations in modern times. Even the culture ministry was destroyed. The director, Liana Badri, a distinguished novelist and filmmaker, showed me the devastation shortly after it had happened. This is the administration room. We had a lot of files here. Yeah. You can see that everything were broken. It was the best place in yeah. the ministry. I mean, what you did here was promote projects for Palestinian culture, basically. Filmmaking, projects for children. Uh, exhibitions, uh, book exhibitions, uh, painters exhibitions, uh, uh, festivals, uh, dance, uh, folklore. Uh, we had a lot of projects. Now we don't have anything to begin. We don't have computers, equipment, furniture. And we have this feeling of humiliation. The smell is awful, isn't it? Look at this. It's awful, yes. This is, a, this is a bag of shit, and the shit smeared all over the photocopier. Two. Two. Two uh, so they just ate and, and, and defecated shit, yes. in the same place. Yes, and uh, putting them on the photocopy. Putting the shit everywhere, even on the walls. And you can see that we have toilets, two toilets on every floor. But they didn't use the toilet. All the time they were making it on the floor or anywhere, as you can see. We have a look in this room in here. Good grief. Look at this. These are children's drawings, aren't they? Yes. This is the room specialized for children's work, children's paintings and children's sculpture, and to encourage yeah. them to paint, to let them express themselves, to make competition, writing competitions. But you can see how they destroyed everything. They don't respect anything. They just want to come and destroy, and this is the systematic terrorism of the Israeli state. For the Palestinians, this cultural vandalism means a deliberate intention to destroy them as a nation. The heart of the conflict here is a struggle for land, for the hills and valleys of Palestine, for precious water and fertile soil. During the early 20th century, the great majority of the population of Palestine were Palestinian Arabs. In 1948, Israel was founded in the shadow of the Holocaust. For the Palestinians, this meant the loss of 78% of their country. Today, they are seeking only the remaining 22% of their homeland. For 35 years, that homeland has been dominated by Israel. In 1987, the Palestinians rose up in what they call Intifada. History will surely call it 
a war of national liberation. They fought mainly with slingshots against tanks and planes, and they were put down with this kind of brutality. Israeli soldiers deliberately breaking the bones of prisoners. Some of the soldiers later insisted they were carrying out official Israeli policy. Two years ago, the Palestinians rose up a second time. This was hardly surprising. During curfews, people live under a form of house arrest. Without notice, they can be locked inside their homes. Their ordinary lives are a maze of controls, roadblocks, checkpoints. This is how I remembered apartheid South Africa. The hidden effect is the same. Humiliation and anger and death. This Palestinian woman knows how devastating the impact of checkpoints can be. Last October, she was about to give birth to her second child, and she and her husband set out for the nearby hospital. They were stopped at an Israeli roadblock where they pleaded to be let through. <laughs> Stories like Fatima's seldom make headlines, and yet many similar cases have been documented. Palestinians try to lead a normal life, but life is never normal. During Israeli military operations, curfews stop everything. Ambulances are denied access to the sick and wounded. Children are stopped from going to school. The Israelis claim this is necessary for their security. If that's true, it's clearly not working. And the security of Palestinians is almost never mentioned. You feel all your life that you are humiliated. You don't control yourself. You don't control the air you are breathing. 
You don't. I don't want. I don't want to talk about planning for anything. This is something we don't even dream about. Plan to next hour or next day what we will do. This is something we don't even dream about because our destiny is not in our hands. It's in the hands of the others who decide how we will live, how we will get married. To get married, to come and live with my husband in this country, I have to take the permission of the Israelis. It's not enough that they took our land and they are not allowing us to have our own state, but also they are controlling every detail in our life. Some Israelis have spoken out. More than 500 soldiers have refused to serve in the occupied territories. We are, they've said, like the Chinese student who stood in front of the tank in Tiananmen Square. We are the conscience of our country. Ishai Rosensby is one of them. I really think the real story of the occupation is there in the checkpoint. I cannot forget this kind of picture, you know, five in the morning, quarter to five in the morning, hundreds of a line of hundreds of people waiting, you know, to pass in the in the checkpoint, and you're standing there, and you see their eyes, stop the the humiliation, the frustration, the hatred. Then you are the occupation. You have all the power. They have no power. You can at every second take their ID and then they are, you know, they have nothing. Because without identification you can, you know, every soldier can, can arrest them. You are the man that stand there, keep them without rights, without freedom. often sees the issue of Palestine through the tragedy and horror of suicide bombings, an expression of despair by powerless people against an oppressor armed with modern weapons. The first female suicide bomber struck in January 2002. Her name was Wafa Idris, the only daughter of a family of refugees who were driven out of their home near Tel Aviv. She was 28, an ambulance volunteer. What makes an ambulance volunteer, a carer, become a suicide bomber? تحكي لنا انه اليوم في واحد استشهد طبعا نزل مخه على الارض مصاريره كانت طالعات اجره كانت طالعه من محلها طبعا هاي نوع اثر عليها بعض الحالات حتى اللي بيكون يعني بعض الفتيات بتكون حوامل بدها تولد طبعا تولد على الحاجز يموت الطفل تبعها على الحاجز صوبت ثلاث مرات في رصاص المطاط يعني هذا انا بتوقع انه هذا يكون دافع قوي the suicide bombs are presented to the Israeli public as an insane act by an insane people uh, uh, with, with whom there is no chance for peace. Instead of putting a wider analysis which would say there is a, a way out of the suicide bombs, while everybody con condemns them, and rightly so, there is a way out of it, 
And the way out of it is to provide the circumstances in which uh, these young people would find uh, avenues of hope instead of avenues of despair. There is, I would say, an orchestrated campaign to silence that kind of uh, analysis inside Israel. Suicide attacks against civilians are clearly crimes, and they are used by extremists. But the extremists rely on the brutality of the occupation and the despair of their young volunteers. Some extraordinary Israelis are brave enough to recognize this. Rami Elhanan is one Israeli father who knows about suicide bombing. On September the 4th, 1997, his daughter Shmada was killed by one. She was 14 years old. She was a child of peace. She was full of life, very laughing girl, very good student, dancing, everything that little girls do. It was the first day of school and she was going down Ben Yehuda Street, which is some kind of a mall, to buy some books for the new year with two girlfriends of hers. One of them, Sivan Zaga, died with her, and the other, Daniela Birman, was very, very severely wounded. Rami is a graphic designer and a former soldier. His father survived Auschwitz. His grandparents, six aunts and uncles, perished in the Holocaust. How, how do you distinguish the feelings of anger that any father would have felt at losing your daughter in such circumstances? I'm not crazy. I don't forget. I don't forgive. Someone who murders little girls, anyone who murders little girls, is a criminal and should be punished. But if you think from the head and not from the gut, and you look what made people do what they do, people that don't have hope, people who are desperate enough to commit suicide, you have to ask yourself, have you contributed in any way for this despair? for this craziness. It, it hasn't come out of the blue. The boy that his mother was humiliated in the morning at the checkpoint will commit suicide in the evening. The suicide bomber was a victim the same as my girl was. Of that I'm sure. You have to understand where these suicide bombers come from. Understanding is part of the way to solving the problem. Few people have been betrayed so often as the Palestinians. Before the Second World War, the British ran Palestine as a mandate. They had promised the Palestinians an independent state, but they also promised Palestine to the Jewish movement known as Zionism. In 1948, when the State of Israel was founded, the Arab world revolted as Palestinians were expelled from their homes or forced to flee in a blitz of fear and terror. Three quarters
quarters of a million people became refugees. Israel's military hero, General Moshe Dayan, later admitted, Jewish places were built in the place of Arab villages. There is not one single place in the country that did not have a former Arab population. While Palestinians were denied the right to return to their homes, anybody who could prove they were Jewish had the right to settle in Israel. In 1967, Palestinians once again fled their homes during the Six-Day War when Israel occupied the remaining 22% of Palestine, describing this as an act of self-defense. To the Palestinians, it seems that Israel's colonizing never stops. This looks like a medieval fortress. The Israelis call it a Jewish settlement. In fact, it's part of a network of armed colonies that by one estimate effectively control 42% of the occupied West Bank. Many of them dominate and intimidate Palestinian communities. They are illegal under international law and have been condemned by the United Nations. When I came to West Bank and saw all these settlements, Israeli settlements, on the tops of the hills, you know, surrounding all the cities, so you feel that they are over you, they are superior. Mm. And you are the, the ant, the, the insect, you know? And you know this is your land, it's nobody's else land, this is our land. But still, they are the ones who are on the tops, and they have all the weapons, uh, and they, they control also everything in the West Bank. This is Moshe Dan. He's taking me to a Jewish settlement in the south of the country, in Palestinian Gaza. Shalom. Shalom. I see here, this is all electrified fence along here, isn't it? Electrified barbed wire. I mean, this is a, a, almost a constant state of war, isn't it, really? I mean, if you have to put up something like electrified barbed wire. It is today. The barbed wire is new because of the situation where Jews are driving home on the road and some guy who is a pal supposed to be a Palestinian policeman shoots the car up. The Israelis bring with them a version of apartheid. We pass this road being built for the sole use of Jewish settlers and soldiers. Until it's opened, these Palestinians must wait hours for the few settlers to drive by. Doesn't that strike you as remarkable that there is a, a road for only one ethnic group of people, a Jews only road? It wasn't always like that. But it Jews, is now. It is now. The reason because many, uh, uh, about a year and a half ago, a school bus, a bus was blown up, an Israeli school bus as it was traveling from Kfar Darum by uh, Arab terrorists. So we decided that the best thing to do would be to create some kind of separation. There doesn't seem to be any doubt that the majority of people deeply resent the presence of this settlement. The, I don't know what the, the actual 
actual people, Arabs who live here, feel and think. Uh, on a political level, they, I'm sure, would prefer not to be under Israeli rule. But in terms of raising their families and supporting their families, this is, I think, one of the best solutions for them. For 35 years, the United Nations has voted on this best solution. Almost unanimously, it has called on Israel to respect international law and get out of occupied Palestine. Inside the settlers' fortress is a surreal middle-class suburb dropped into one of the most overcrowded and poorest corners of the world. One of the strategic aims here is the control of water, which is precious in the Middle East. While Palestinians often don't have enough running water, sometimes none at all in the heat of summer, the settlers seldom run out. And the symbol of the occupation is this wall. The thing that is striking about this settlement is that it's, it's like a fortress. I mean, this is like a Berlin Wall. Like the Berlin Wall, very bad. We don't feel uh, comfortable. Mm. Uh, we live here and I'm here for 15 years without these walls, fences and everything. We live very normal. This uh, last year changed all, all the rules in the area. Yeah. Everything was changed. The justification for taking somebody else's land is biblical. That God gave them Palestine, and God, not the history of others, is their witness. I'm here because it's obvious. That's my place. It's not something in my hands that we can, you know, we can give it back. Not me, not any politician or, or, or any, anybody, or parliament or whatever because it's, it's a movement. It's something comes 3,000 years ago when Moses brought us here and we have in our mind, we have the dream of building a temple in Jerusalem. Something a lot bigger than religion. Where, where will it end though? If there's no compromise, doesn't that mean conflict? Where? Life is full of conflicts. I don't know what to say. I know maybe I'm saying something too strong. It's one zero game. We will fight. The conflict is here. We will fight. It's one zero game. Not to kill each other, but it's us or them. On the other side of the wall is the reality of Palestine. At yet another checkpoint, people are waiting and waiting. Let me just take you on a journey from Gaza to Khanyun. This normal journey usually takes 20 minutes to reach from Gaza town to Khanyun. But after this checkpoint, this journey sometimes takes people from four 
to nine hours. People, as you see here, waiting to go from Gaza to Hanunis to, to guarantee the security of the passage of two or three settlers. Yeah. So it is the security so Two or three settlers will drive along here. In the meantime, all this traffic has to bank up. Exactly. How long will these people be here, do you think, to sort of get? These people, they will stay till tomorrow morning because the road is closed now. It will not be reopened until tomorrow morning, 7 o'clock in the morning. Dr. El Farah's family used to own land near this crossing. The Israelis confiscated it and demolished the home. And this is typical of what happens almost every day in occupied Palestine. They demolished my house and uh, another 26 houses the same night. I call it terrorism. Here I call it terrorism. How long has your family lived there? Maybe back to 900 years. We were in the same place. I feel angry. I feel uh, devastated. I feel abandoned by the world. Please be frank with you. I feel that nobody is taking care of us. This is Gaza, just a few miles down the road from the affluence of the Israeli settlement. The contrast is extraordinary. Almost a million Palestinians are trapped behind electrified barbed wire and roadblocks. Always waiting for invasion, their defenses are pathetic mounds of sand. Fear has a permanent presence. Waiting for the invasion is worse than the invasion itself. Because you're waiting, you don't know when, where, and how they will hit to, or come in. The first time they bombed in Gaza, I was still in another flat, and we had children, many children in the, in the building. And oh, I had all the children and their mothers screaming and crying. The half-built buildings of Gaza are a testament to the hopes raised, then dashed, by the talk of an independent Palestine. Without Israeli permission, most people can't leave and they can't return. They can't get to jobs. Their produce can't get to market. Most struggle to live on about a pound a day, a poverty compounded by an Israeli policy called closure. You see, for Israel to sustain this unsustainable occupation, it is transforming every city and every Palestinian town and village into a prison, basically. Surrounded by tanks, surrounded by walls, surrounded by fences. And it's not like they're building a border between us and Israel. It's building borders inside West Bank and Gaza, between our cities and towns for the sake of their settlement. They are obliging us to be occupied people and not citizens. The United States, Mr. Prime Minister, has been proud of its association with the State of Israel. Rest assured that the security of Israel is a principal objective of this administration. I want everybody to know, should I be the president, Israel is going to be our friend. I'm going to stand by Israel. Israel's 
occupation of Palestine would not be possible without the backing of America. In the oil-rich Middle East, Israel is America's deputy sheriff, receiving billions of dollars along with the latest weapons, F-16 aircraft, bombs, missiles, Apache helicopters. Today, Israel is the fourth largest military power in the world, and it has nuclear weapons. We, we saw an Apache helicopter circling in the sky above our head, then shooting a missile. The rockets fell just 200 meters from our house. All our windows were shattered. I had a child in front of me, my daughter, who was 11 years old, shivering from fear, worried, frightened to death. And I could do nothing to protect her. And you don't know whether in the second minute you or your daughter will be dead. That feeling of impotence is indescribable and I will never forget it. This is bomb damage in Gaza. Although America is Israel's main arms supplier, it's not widely recognized that Britain also fuels the conflict here, even though it condemns Israel for its illegal occupation. During the first 14 months of the Palestinian uprising, the Blair government approved 230 export licenses for weapons and military equipment to Israel. The categories these covered included large caliber weapons, ammunition, bombs, and vital parts for military aircraft that almost certainly included American-supplied combat helicopters. You may have seen these Apache gunships on the news, firing missiles at densely populated areas. Tony Blair has said, and I quote him, we are doing everything we can to bring peace and stability to the Middle East. As much as they humiliate us and uh, uh, kill us and destroy our land, destroy everything we do, our schools, our organizations, infrastructure, everything they like to destroy. But this gives us more power to continue and resist. In the news we get, only the Palestinians are described as terrorists. And yet the Israelis have a long history of terrorism, both before and since the founding of the Jewish state. At least three Israeli prime ministers have been involved in campaigns of terror. The tragic scene is like a serious incident during the Blitz. The hotel housed the British Army headquarters and the Palestine government offices, and casualties were very heavy. The commander of the terrorist group that blew up the King David Hotel in Jerusalem in 1946 was Manaikan Begin. 91 people were killed. Manaikan Begin was Israeli prime minister in the 70s and 80s. He once described the massacre as a splendid act of conquest. Yitzhak Shamir was prime minister until 1992. He had been a leader of a Jewish group called the Stern Gang which carried out a string of assassinations.